Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Death keeps on coming, but she don't do nothing. Cause that old clear rivers, she just keeps blowing along. <laughs> I sat there and I wrote that song as I, cause I keep seeing the mice. I keep saying to myself, clear rivers, the best name. I think to ever come of the horror genre, clear fucking rivers. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, it has been a hot minute, Roger, since you've written an original jingle to open up one of our episodes. <laughs> so powerful. <laughs> it, 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 that's, that's what makes us unique. Every yes. once in a while, like once a year, because it's been a long time, Roger will just... He, we, we kind of take turns with the intro and we don't tell the other one what we're going to do. So it's always a surprise. And I've been waiting with bated breath oh. for you to do another jingle because you did what I don't even remember the movie. It's been so oh long, my but God, it's been a minute. Come on. What podcast gives you original <laughs> clear rivers? Belting oh. top of my lungs. I have someone in my Airbnb. And they just probably heard that through these very thin walls and let them hear it because you know who I fucking love clear fucking rivers. And I can't say enough about her. I can't say enough about Allie her. Allie fucking Larder. Our second our second, second. visit with uh, Allie Larder. She, she is always welcome in this She's house. always welcome. Guys, we actually reviewed and we're gonna here we're gonna plug our Patreon because Ooh, we haven't time. we haven't plugged our Patreon forever and we, we, we have the same you know, nine patrons just hanging on to, to what we're doing on there. But you guys seriously need to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast because we have uh, 15 right now, almost 16, because I'm getting ready to post the new full-length, we're talking full-length episodes up there for you to listen to, including our hysterically fun review of Obsessed, the fucking Beyonce and Allie Larder battle film, and we had a blast with that one. <laughs> Probably one you of know, my favorites. I gotta say about Allie Larder... You said she's a whore in the past. Well, I mean, I, I specifically <laughs> vowed. I said I wasn't going to slut shame, <laughs> so I'm not. I'm not going there. But I'm going to say this about Ellie Larder. It sounds like I hate her, but I don't. You know, I have a soft spot for her. I love her. She's not the best actress. I just got to put it out on the table. There are some moments in which Clear Rivers is very wooden and dialogue-y. Like, some of her lines, I don't know where she's coming from as an actress, but they feel very, like, honed in. But the bitch can glare. <laughs> like, I don't know a 
bitch who can give a glare like Allie fucking Larder. And really, that's all it comes down to for Clear Rivers is glaring and staring and making hostile, angry statements. And I'm here for it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm glad she returned for this sequel, even though I have some qualms. But we will get there, folks. Uh, yeah. If you haven't figured it out, we are skipping. We are skipping the first one and going right to what Fuck is it. Ar- <laughs> yes, what is arguably the best entry in the franchise. Oh, don't get me started, Troy. Our our, our grand return coming down to this. Yes, our grand return after being on a hiatus for the last three weeks. We are giving it our all with this film, and it is <laughs> Final Fucking Destination <laughs> Two. Sign me up. If you sign me up, I can't. I'm going to say it right now, and I'm coming in strong and I'm coming in hot, Troy. <laughs> I cannot think of a sequel that, in my opinion, steps up the game quite like Final Destination 2. At this point, the fuckers behind the first Final Destination realized exactly what about Final Destination makes it tick and makes it work. And they took all those things and they fucking threw it at the wall and they just let it explode all over the place. And what we got was just such an amped up balls to the walls upgrade on the approach of just sheer unexplained violence against human beings. Like they take it so much further in this movie and, and for the better, really for the better, this movie constantly just blows me away. Literally Allie Larder. <laughs> I was thinking about this today. Cause I just finished watching this again, uh, right before we recorded, just so it was fresh in my mind. Uh, you know, I was thinking because we are for our Patreon episode for the month of October, and we actually already recorded it. Uh, it is we do Jason takes Manhattan, and then for you know our our talking bodies episode for our Patreon, which is kind of a a fun little segment we do for our tier two patrons every month, where we literally just kind of pick a topic and and shoot the shit about it. And and we I, I talked about I, I ranked my Friday the Thirteenth films in order from worst to best on that episode. And, you know, the Friday the 13th franchise is one that is definitely shaky. And and then having saw Halloween Ends recently. Have you seen Halloween Ends, Roger, yet? I don't fucking give a fuck. You know what? I, I'm I'm going to see it. And you know what? I'm gonna even I'm gonna do it in theaters. I'm just kind of I've got to like if I don't I wear Halloween T-shirts all the time with Michael Myers' face glaring off of them. I can't not see it, but I'm mad. Yeah, we're gonna have some conversations about it. Um, you may like it because it is definitely not like the first two. I saw it, and you know, I I really I I understood what they were going for. It just for me, it did not work as they intended it to work. That's all I'll say. But I, I, my whole point is doing that, watching Halloween ends and then re- reviewing Jason takes Manhattan. I started thinking about horror franchises. And my whole point is I really think final destination is probably one of the more solid franchises that we have in horror. I mean, oh, yeah. Halloween, ooh, you know, ter- there are some terrible Halloween films out there. We all know that uh, Friday the 13th. There's some terrible ones. Final Destination has some that aren't as great as the others, but as a whole franchise, it's pretty, I think, damn entertaining. I actually love part five, too. I thought the the twist at part five was so fucking clever. And it almost, almost edges out part two as being my favorite. But as a whole, I think this franchise really is strong. I, f- I really feel like they get people to write and direct these films that really have a passion for it and understand what the fans want to see. 
Um, you know, David Gordon Green should probably take a hint from from some of these writers that have written for Final Destination, and they're doing a new one. And I can only imagine they're they're going to make sure that it gives the fan what's they the fans what they want because i know Je- i know jeffrey reddick is still heavily involved in all of the different sequels you know a gay man who wrote the original screenplay for part 1 and, and produced it and whatnot um so i mean to me that's it's just it's a consistent franchise but i i feel like this one definitely stands out among them as being probably the best i mean that opening yeah fucking car crash which we're going to get into oh my god Oh my god, get get out of here. I was literally in a like on the highway earlier thinking about it. And like name a movie for me that I think has had such a level of like social impact on culture in general. You can't not see a log truck and think of this movie. Like amazing. The impact this movie has had. Name another movie. Uh, yeah, it is so funny you say that because over the I mean this was released in 2003, so we're going on almost 20 years ago, which is fucking insane if you think about it. Wow. But I have seen, and over the course of the last twenty years, nineteen years, I have—I don't know how many social media posts I've seen where someone is driving behind a log truck and has taken a picture and posted it on social media, saying something about Final Destination Two. It is that ingrained in our minds, and you are one hundred percent right. I, me, have—I have driven cross country many times from Houston to Davenport to Davenport to Vegas. I mean, many, many times in, in my in the course of all of my moves around the country. I refuse to drive behind a log truck simply because of this fucking movie. This movie did for log trucks what Jaws did for sharks. Or Psycho did for sh- the shower. Yeah. You know? I mean, it, it's one of those things. This this opening sequence is so masterfully done. It looks great even today. I was so impressed with how how it looks. Twenty years later, it it holds up. The CGI across the board, Troy. I mean, honestly, you know, we're not CGI fans, but t- don't tell me that the the selective moments in which they incorporated CGI in this movie did not enhance it. They knew when to use it. They knew how to use it, and it is truly an impressive display across the board. We've discussed this. I'm usually not a fan of CGI either because it, and it tends to look dated real quick this it does not it's still you're very right it still stands up as as looking fantastic like this could be released today as it is and it could compete with films like halloween ends um in terms of special effects it's 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 breathtaking it's a breathtaking film particularly like i said that opening sequence but i I guess we should kind of get into it right yeah i mean i've been chomping at the bit i i know we have been chomping at the bits to, be able to, rec- to record because you have been just to, for if, so you know fans you know the reason why we've taken a little bit of a hiatus is roger has been filming his sophomore feature film meet and if you have not been following like the facebook group for me you need to because the promotional images and everything that has been posted so far looks fucking amazing I am in awe of of what you've done so far, and I'm super, super excited. As somebody who has read the script and kind of you've you filled me in on what's going on and, and have sent me behind the scenes little photos, I gotta tell you, I am super, super impressed. You are you are doing something I think that is going to definitely stand out in the horror queer indie community. And it's something we need. And I know, I know for a fact that you're really pushing boundaries with it. Uh, so he has been consumed with that. And I'm an indie filmmaker. I've made three films starting to hopefully make my fourth. It consumes you. 
It consumes you. Uh, it consumes every second of your life, particularly when you are filming and you have a crew and a cast that you're trying to corral and get to where they need to be and, and scheduling it's, it's, it consumes your, your life. It really does. So that is why we've been on a hiatus, but I want everyone to just really check out what he's done. He's already posted some promotional stills and it just looks incredible. The lighting, ugh, the, the gayness, it's just breathtaking. I, I'm so excited to see the final film and for my cameo is the the house mother i don't <laughs> the bathhouse <laughs> employee troy's coming in please i said you know what i said to him i said to troy i was like i gotta bring you out for how could i not you know how can i not bring bring you out for a few days because of what we do this is what brought us together as filmmakers and you know we got a we got a podcast here to discuss in a moment a movie but i do want to say thank you for saying that i appreciate very much that you'd raise me up um, in that way as a fellow artist, because I love, you know, that's this is what brought us together. We both care so much about it. Um, and I've got to really take a moment to say I have the most fucking amazing team I could possibly have ever asked for. And I want to give them a moment of credit just because I do think this is going to be something that's uh, impactful for us. If, it, if it's handled the way it was the last few weeks, it was a life-changing experience. I cannot wait to create more, create more with you, Troy, and talk about it more with our fans. Uh, because it really, it makes a lot of us tick. I know we have a lot of listeners in the same fucking boat. So next few weeks, I think Troy and I have some really awesome material coming for the Patreon and for our listeners in general. Just because, God, what a creative time right now, Troy. You're feeling it, and I'm ready to talk oh, film absolutely. with you. And I, a film that I think could uh, obviously provide us with some influence is, I think, Final Destination 2. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I think of, of of death scenes and the setup and the suspense leading up to a death scene, this is the film that I, I generally think of as doing it so well. Um, just when you think it's going to go one way, it goes a completely different route. And it's what I love about the franchise. It's what I love about this particular film. It's how creative they get. And it definitely gives you some ideas for like your own films and how you want to structure and pace a particular scene, death scene in specific, specifically. But yeah, the film opens up with a, a news broadcast that's playing over the opening credits. And it is a news broadcast that is about the anniversary of Flight 180 crashing a year ago. So it's been a year since the events of Final Destination, the first film. And we see like this this guest who's very like passionate about the fact that the kids that got off the plane met their fates because of the fact that they cheated death and that death can't be cheated. And he's very adamant about the fact that death is around us at all times. Uh, and I do like that the the host of this show, show is like trying to call him out. He's like, oh, God, people die all the time. And the guy's like, no, you're trying to you can't justify this. Every single one of them died in a very specific way that just wasn't coincidence. And throughout this, you're getting some very like creepy uh, imagery of Kimberly, who is our lead, played by the lovely. Can we just say the lovely A.J. Cook? Stunning. I went through an AJ Cook obsession because this movie, we're going to delve into she it. She looks like, you know who she looks like? Who? Anna Ferris. You know, a fuller lipped brunette Anna Ferris. I can see what you're talking about. I can't get enough of fucking AJ Cook. Remember her in that movie Ripper that we can't seem to find? <laughs> but yeah. we really want to review? God, I fucking love her. Uh, and she is 
truly she's my favorite lead in the series because she has a groundedness to her that feels very understated, but feels also very like in the midst of what is oftentimes absurd situations, girl keeps it grounded and it would be easy, really easy to, to kind of go off the rails and play this too big. And I think she's part of the anchor that kind of steers or keeps this, you know, keeps this rooted and keeps the story pushing through some of its more absurd plot points. Cause there are some elements of this film <laughs> that are a bit big, big decisions, but it's fucking final destination too. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> I would agree with you. She, she definitely is even keel throughout the film when, uh, when other people around her are kind of losing their shit, she's the one that is keeping it together. Um, I do like the fact that she really takes the initiative to go and seek out Clear Rivers once she realizes what's what once she realizes what is happening. She's a fun, playful character as well because during the opening scene when she's traveling with her friends, you can tell there is a sense of like playfulness uh, with her, and she just comes off as being just so um, so charismatic and and fun. And you can you buy the relationship that he, she has with her f- blonde female friend that's in the movie yeah. for what five minutes. I love the I love their interaction. I love her little sweet interactions yeah. with her father. Um, she just seems very real. So I would agree with you there. Um, some of the imagery, though, that we get that's playing over this news broadcast is very interesting. If you're really paying attention, there's like almost like little clues about what's going to happen. Um, like there's like this there's like this frame of like a picture of her and the blonde, and if you notice, like this a scalpel is laying next to it, and it's like aimed right at her eyeball. Yeah, I mean, it's and there's a spider. They're just weird formations on the ceiling. Um, so I, I do like this. And I, I, I she she does wake up. A breeze wakes her up and she's able to catch the final moments of the broadcast. I really enjoy this opening because this is something that could have been so much cheesier than it is when you think about what they're trying to do here. But they. Um, they have two actors who are pretty damn good delivering this news broadcast. It gave me vibes of, of Dawn of the Dead. Like, in, you remember in the opening of the old Dawn of the Dead and Romero's Dawn of the Dead, you have like these news kind of, uh, really like kind of, um, uh, a cheap looking news interviews going on where people are arguing and fighting and kind of losing their cool. And it, there's something about the performances here that I really just enjoyed. It really sets the tone. It gives you such a sense of foreboding. It just, it really sets the stage. Even if you didn't see the first movie, this is very thoroughly explained to you what occurred. They make it clear that they catch you up. You know exactly where we're at. Um, and and it, it makes you, if you like the last movie, it makes you excited to, you know, build off the story and this continuation. You know, it's very much aware of what transpired with that flight. Yeah, you don't have to, I, you don't have to have seen the first film to watch this. Because they do very heavily explain all of the characters in the first film, what their fates were, and the fact that Clear Rivers is kind of the surviving person from the first film. And she carries over into this film, so she's able to provide even more detail and, and summary of part one. Now, I like part one. I would watch part one again. I think that like this one's better, so if I had the choice between part one and this one, it'd always be this one. You know, It is one of those sequels that I do appreciate because you really don't have to watch the first one to... Um, to get it. Uh, there is a kind of an ominous uh, thing that the guest says at the end of the broadcast that she catches. And he's, he says the only way to survive death is to look beneath the visible world. Otherwise 
There's no escape from it. Um, and I do, you know, the, these, this theme it gets a little convoluted, what they have to end up doing in order to survive. And this whole concept of in order for, you know, for death to bypass you, you have to have new, it gets a little convoluted. And I think we're probably on the same page there. We're, we're going to get there. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, you had mentioned um, her friend, Shana, who, I mean, this movie impacted me in so many fucking ways when it came out. I went out and I bought that goddamn AJ Cook blue Puma jacket. I found the male version, the closest one I could, and I donned that gay apparel every fucking where I went. I love that goddamn blue jacket. It was completely 100% inspired by AJ Cook in Final Destination 2. I even dyed my hair the same color. Like, I had an obsession with this character, and I'm really going to get deep into this. Like, this is going to be a very personal review. But even Sarah Carter, who plays Shayna, her best friend, the blonde, like, I love her. She has this weird kind of, like, almost pre-recorded sound to her voice that sounds really, like, bubbly and light. Like, what are you talking about? And, like, <laughs> and I, um, I became really, like, obsessed with this actress, too. She's in a movie called... DOA Dead or Alive. It's based off of a video game. She has a very big role in it. It's surprisingly loaded with CGI for the era, um, but it's really fucking entertaining. And I, yeah, I've really like just formed such a weird obsession with this movie around the time that it came out, my late teen, early 20s uh, years, that um, seeing some of these things, it, it's almost like super nostalgic. Even some of these deaths, like they go down in like the annals of horror history. So watching this movie got me really like pumped. And as we're coming up on the sequences, we're leading to them leaving for the highway. Like you almost feel this adrenaline rush, even when you've seen the movie, because you know what is about to come. Yeah. And what is about to come is pretty damn epic because the next morning Kimberly wakes up, she's getting in her, she's getting in her SUV. We find out she's going on a, like a little spring break getaway with her friend, the blonde and two male friends. They're going to uh, Tampa, Miami, Tampa, Tampa, <laughs> new somewhere in Florida. And you know, the, I do like the fact that the, the blonde is just like making sex jokes in front of her dad. In front of Kimberly. I'm yeah. Horny. When are we going to get the boys? I'm horny. And, you know, her dad gives her a kiss goodbye and, and Kimberly gets in her SUV and pulls away. And he immediately notices a bright red puddle of transmission fluid that is eerily looks like blood. What I find impressive about this movie is there's a lot of secondary characters who overall don't have a ton of screen time. And I'm going to use both the father and Shayna as examples. For being a very large ensemble cast, I feel that even the smallest players in this film feel very richly defined somehow, some way. The relationship with the father who really isn't like that pivotal of a character, you can still tell that there's like a really strong relationship between Kimberly and her dad because of what she explains happened with her mother. You can tell that she and her father are very close. Um, and like, I buy it. I buy it more than I should for a movie like Final Destination 2, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like I mentioned, the relationship between her and her dad is very, very sweet, very charming. It feels real. Um, but they drive off, they stop at the entrance of the highway and immediately just all of these weird little things start to, uh, that Kimberly starts to notice. For example, uh, like a, a homeless woman, it appears comes up and pounds on her driver's side 
window just as the homeless woman's big bag, plastic bag of cans breaks and all of the cans, you know, spill out onto the, the side of the highway. And I was thinking this poor homeless woman, this is probably not the best place for you to be at the edge of this busy, busy. I mean, this, this freeway is pretty popping. Freeway. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Someone get her off the highway. Like if there's a cop over there. He should be moving, ushering this woman along. I'll say this though, Troy, give me a role like that. That's, that's my fucking dream role right there, that bag woman uh, with the cans where they get that good close-up of her face at the glass just like glaring in through the window. That woman's remembered because, because she comes out of fucking nowhere. But you know what? Her moment, uh, she shines, and I love her. Uh, but yeah, everything that starts to transpire is so expertly placed in the overall execution of the progression of, of what goes down. I mean, not only is the inevitable accident breathtaking in in its execution but the build up to it is so intricate all of these little moments that kimberly starts to pick up on you know what's on the radio it's about the flight the memorial that uh the memorial that's about to happen in honor of it they change the channel it's highway to hell Ooh, that's ominous uh that goddamn fucking child driving by with the two vehicles smashing them together like uh just blatantly <laughs> making it very obvious that a car accident is in fact about the to bus happen. the bus like, with all the students and they're they're chanting the pile bus. up pile up pile up oh my god the fucking driver with the beer bottle <laughs> like there are so many little things happening it's it, the list is astonishing the amount of detail that is placed all throughout this movie to be honest and that's why when it hits, it hits so hard is because there are so many details led to every death leading up to these big, big buildups. And they are always satisfying. I mean, this movie, I am shocked that it manages to hit time after time after time because this accident is amazing. But even what follows after this is so memorable. So many good kills. Oh, yeah, I do. We do get some titties. Oh, my uh, God. Bro- <laughs> That's you right there. Troy. <laughs> <laughs> On the back of the motorcycle, flashing the teenage boys. In the that car smile. <laughs> she's, she, she's the woman proud. doing it. She's proud. She's just like, look at these. <laughs> I love I mean, her. Yeah, it's just so random, though. It's like, okay, I guess you wanted some some boobs in a Final Destination movie, and this was your chance to get it. But yeah, she. I mean, they're just all kinds of shit. There's, and we start to get introduced to like the other characters as well in in very short spurts. Like you do see um, Rory driving his his car and he's trying to smoke some weed when, and, and snort coke while he's driving. We get Evan, who is in his little uh, Mustang type racer car and he's speeding past the girls until he notices them, gives them a smirk. We get Kat talking to someone, her coworker or her boss or something on her cell phone when, uh, you know, one of the boys in the back of the SUV flips out his um, joint because he sees the cop. Officer Burke behind him and it lands on her windshield and starts some of the leaves on her windshield on fire. It's, you know, it's all these little details. You get, um, what's her Nora and Timothy driving in their little Ford old four Pinto. I mean, so you start to get all to introduce to all these little characters in very brief vignettes until like the inevitable happens. And this right here, leading up to this, I, I've got to say this is one of the single best introductory sequences I've seen to what is an ensemble of characters. And to identify a personality with a vehicle is is 
people are what they drive. I know when you when you look at each character, they each have a vehicle that very much like represents them. And it's such a great way to bring you into this world and introduce you to these personalities because it has to be said early on. I think you and I are both going to agree on this. This film contains what I think to be one of the single best ensemble casts within the genre to date. There are so many personalities that are unique, that do not feel forced. Nobody feels overly sexualized. These are literally random people from all walks of life coming together in this situation that is very difficult to explain, uh, but they all work so well together. And I just, I find them so fucking enjoyable to watch. Yeah, you know, that's the thing is I, I think maybe that's why I also like five as well, because five does a really good job at kind of giving us a group of uh, main characters that are more oh realistic and grounded. I know we use the word grounded for uh, for the character of Kimberly at the start of this podcast, but I just feel like every single character in this film is grounded in, in like the sense of reality, like they feel like real people. They, I think, I feel like the filmmakers behind this particular one cared about these characters maybe a little bit more so than them just being like, oh, well, they're going to be, they're going to be killed off. Even like the first to go, and we'll get there, but even like Tim, Timothy, or no, Evan is the first to go, then Timothy, but even like Evan, you know, has a a, a sense of personality and there's some like backstory that is given very strategically about him and it just works really really well but i totally agree with you with 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 this cast It, it seems like it's the most oh realistic group of characters of the entire franchise nobody is like overtly like annoying or um over the top or like you said sexualized these just seem like a very normal group of people from all walks of life that just happen to be put into this situation. I feel like what maybe makes it makes them feel a lot more real than some of the casts of the other films is the fact that the cast of the other films are all teenagers with the exception of the teacher, Crystal Cloakey in part one, who we love her. I love her. Yeah. Yeah. But all the other sequels, the cast is teenagers. So there is a sense of making them annoying or cliche And here. You get characters from all walks of life. I mean, you have Nora, you have Eugene, you have, I mean, there it's a, it's a diverse group that you just don't see in the other films. And I think that's what maybe makes it feel a lot more realistic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really sets itself apart from every other film in the series in that it is not, a film that feels specifically just crafted for like teenagers. Like I've always felt the final destination movies were really geared towards like a bubblegum audience that wants to see gore. Uh, you know, they kind of played into that like teen fan base, the kind of fan base that would go to see slashers, but then it just produced like this insane amount of violence as well. So it kind of drew in another audience for that. Um, but I've always felt that the cast have always felt young. You know, except for this film, this film, it's not like it's like the random teacher. This is like people from all walks of life. And it does make it feel so much more interesting overall. And that's why it gets so many points for me. And yes, yeah, like swinging back around to this, this inevitable accident, uh, when it does happen, when the first thing truly goes awry, the incident with the log truck, as 
the officer as Thomas is, is, is he's driving his car and he drops a coffee on his lap and he doesn't he's he doesn't fully notice what's going on at first he's distracted so when he looks up it's already in the midst of it um, the logs atop this log truck begin to release because the chain becomes loose and the moment of realization in his face I mean when you think Troy I, and I'm a non-driver I've got to say this I'm a non-driver for life I tried it I have severe anxiety was problematic I am terrified in vehicles at all times even as a passenger the visual of this this is exactly how I imagine this would look and feel and it is it is truly terrifying and never will it not be terrifying yeah no yeah so what happens is the log truck basically the chains that are holding these huge huge let's let's take a moment to realize that these are like a redwood <laughs> redwood <stump>. trees <laughs> these are huge they uh, they the chains holding them break and causes the logs to roll off of the, this truck and they hit the concrete of the freeway with such a loud thump and i thought that was super effective to hit home how fucking massive these logs are when they hit the ground it's like and they bounce up and yeah and the first one goes right through this poor cop's window and it is i mean it takes his head clean off and it comes out the back windshield and you just see the blood and the brain matter just splatter out and it is so cringy and I wonder if they took um, inspiration from the opening scene of a film called um, we're going to cover this film because it kind of has a, a huge gay following and it's kind of gay in its themes itself. Uh, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. Have you ever seen that? No, but I know there's a huge fan with base Su for it with Susan Tyrell. OK, the opening of, of that has a very similar scene. So I think it's, I think maybe this particular death was trying to pay homage to that which if it was awesome for them that they went that up and found a really great but obscure film to pull from because it's virtually the same scene but then i mean it fucking all hell breaks loose in this opening and you know it, like i said it's epic it it's it's masterfully done it still holds up today. You got fucking cars crashing. You got poor Eugene flying off of his motorcycle and slamming up against one of the logs as his motorcycle then slides into him and crushes him. You have poor Nora and her son Timothy trying to stop their car, but he drops one of his water bottles and it gets stuck under the brake so she can't stop and they end up driving right into a fucking log. Their car blows up. The long shaggy haired Rory I mean, he's his car slams into the bottom of a semi and blows up. I mean, it's explosion after explosion after explosion. Cars flipping. Kimberly's SUV finally flips over, and you you get a good visual of that SUV spinning over. And one thing I notice upon like subsequent viewings is you see that poor blonde girl's head like literally hanging out of the sunroof. Oh, Troy, that is an, a visual that sticks with me. Like when I saw it again, I. I um I immediately wrote the note down. I was so um still thrown off, even though I know it's coming. It's it's the raw brutality of just this body limply being flung. This girl who's clearly not wearing a seatbelt. Uh, it, it it takes me back to the fear I felt when we were in like grade school and they would show us those videos of like, this is what happens if you fool around on the bus. And all of a sudden you see school buses colliding into each other and like bodies being thrown around. Did you ever have to watch that? Cause I have a, a distinct memory of that. And it traumatized me. It scared the shit out of me. That was the goal of it to keep kids fucking in line. This is the adult version of that. Oh, those in videos you had to watch in driver's ad too. 
those are pretty terrifying. But yeah, I mean, it culminates in her SUV flipping over and, and she's kind of stuck. Kimberly's kind of stuck in the in the seat because she's seat belt in and she's literally watching poor Evan burn to death, um, which is a terrifying in itself because he is screaming a bloody murderous and he can't get out of his seatbelt and he's just engulfed in flames, which is literally, literally one of my biggest fears. I will tell you, my mother, and I shouldn't say this, rest in peace, mom, but she refused to wear a seatbelt because she had that fear. She always had this fear that she would get in a car crash and she wouldn't be able to free herself because of the seatbelt would be stuck. So she wouldn't wear one. A little tidbit, but I know there are people that are, I mean, this proves that that could happen. Yeah. <laughs> like he literally can't get out of the car because he's, his seatbelt is is strapping him in. I just remember that very distinctly, that she had a very, very severe fear of that. And I, she's seen this movie and I remember her being like, see, see, uh, but you know, it's, it's so disturbing because he's burning alive. Kimberly's watching it. And all of a sudden, then you see this, uh, semi that's engulfed in flames come out of nowhere, crash into Evan's car and then come straight at Kimberly. And she screams right as it gets to her and then it cuts and she wakes up and we realize it's just a premonition. One thing I really love about this film, bringing a female into the role that was initiated, you know, uh, with a male, which is rare. And I mean, Devin Zawa does a phenomenal job in the first film. I very much enjoy his performance, but with, with having a female in the role, I think she's allowed to go places with her fear a little more um, than males, at least at the time were allowed to express. Cause they always have to be more like play it butcher, play it more like uh, intense, not really allow them to have moments of like genuine, like, f- um, I don't want to say fear, but like, you know, she's allowed to cry. She's allowed to get emotional and get sensitive with the material. And it makes, I think for her reactions just to be a little more interesting to me than Devin was. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah. His character seemed a little bit more hysterical than yes. she does. And so it got a little bit grating and I understand. Okay. Yes. I understand why the character would be hysterical. Obviously all your friends are dying. You realize that you're probably next, but I like the fact that she does not lose her shit uh, as much as he did. So she's very much like in her mind and, and with this character, the Kimberly character is like, okay, this is what we need to do to survive. Let's stop all of this other fucking nonsense. And let's just focus on what we need to do to survive. She's not hysterical. She's not, you know, it's very matter of fact, this is what I need to do. And this is what we all should do. You know, and then she ends up, she ends up being, you know, right in what she, in terms of what she does. In some ways, I almost feel like she is the like equivalent of like, um, like a Friday the 13th to what it did for the final girl, the equivalent to the final destination series of, Devin Sawa was great in the character that they created, but Kimberly set the mold for the kind of character that the viewers expected afterwards. They're a lot more take charge. They're a lot more in control. I feel all of the characters that follow Kimberly feel more in her footsteps than Devin Sawa's. Does that make sense? Definitely. Definitely. The female characters are sort of the primary focus of the rest of the franchise, even though you do have, they always have a male counterpart with them. It is like the female, the one that is the, it seems like the focus in part, part three, we get Mary Elizabeth Winstead, correct? Yeah. She's great. Yeah. 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 And then part four, we get, 
can't think of her name, but it's, she's paired with a guy. Part five, we get um, Nick. Um, oh, he's a cutie. He he was in, um, oh, he's been in a lot of stuff, but he's like the primary focus. He kind of takes the step of, he kind of fills the shoes of the Devin Sawa character, but he also has a female counterpart. So it became kind of a trope. In this film, the the, the male counterpart to Kimberly happens to be the police officer who is officer Burke, who when Kimberly comes out of her premonition, she, you know, is freaked out. Obviously her friends are asking her what's wrong and she's able to like predict everything. She's like the next song on the radio is going to be highway to hell. She turns it on. It's highway to hell. Everything she's saying is true. So she pulls up and blocks the entrance of the freeway. So the cars behind her can't get on. And this is when the cop pulls up, ask her what's going on. And she's like, there's going to be a major pileup. I just saw it. Um, you know, you need to stop this log truck and he makes her get out of the car. And all of a sudden the log truck drives by and the other ones are getting impatient. Um, particularly, uh, Rory who's honking his horn and Evan who gets out of the car along with the pregnant Isabella, Isabella, Justina Machado from six feet under. Yeah. I feel like she has the the weirdest storyline out of, out of everything going on here. It feels the most disjointed. She's everybody else is so like bonded together, and then there's Isabella, like living her life, pregnant, delivering packages. You know, um, so she does feel very separated from everybody. She's she's fine. Like the actress is really good, but I I feel like the character is the one that feels. If I was going to say anybody felt a little lacking to me, it's it's her storyline in contrast to everybody else's. Well, her storyline exists solely to give us sort of a twist ending, you know, because it builds up where she becomes, even though she's in the film the least, she becomes a very prominent figure in the film. And yeah, she's great, but yeah, she's just, it's so, she's never has any scenes with the rest of the cast. You know, this, this film is very much an ensemble piece with the exception of her. She is never in any of the scenes with the other cast members, uh, which I guess, you know, is a really good foreshadowing in terms of what how how the film is going to end with her particular story arc the fact that she's never engaging with the other yeah members of this little group but as kimberly is talking to the um the police officers the log truck drives by and she's like that's it that's it and drives by and she's like you need to stop it and all of a sudden we hear an explosion we see that her premonition came true all of the cars in front of her have caught on fire and are crashing and blowing up you know, everyone is like, what the fuck? She is just like freaking out. And there's this moment where, you know, she's just taking everything in. And all of a sudden we see the officer rush at her, grab her and pull her out of the way just in time because this giant fucking semi crashes right into her SUV with her friends in it, causing it to explode and kill them all. This whole sequence, again, phenomenal but that's specifically the shot of her that you mentioned when she's like taking it all in turning her face and you see the officer in like very soft focus in the background start moving in slow motion a beautiful shot a perfectly placed shot leading up to this moment of just intense violence there's if you look at the little detail of of when the semi is about to collide with the um, with the SUV, you see the one friend start to look out the window, like noticing it. And it's this little tiny detail. And I remember watching the making of documentary that came with this, um, um, with the DVD set. 
And um, I remember how they talked about little CGI additions that they placed to enhance it. And this really is a great example of of taking key little moments and simply uh, adding a little bit of CGI flair. Most of this is all very much physically happening. Like this isn't digital. All of this car accident sequence is very much practical effects. But then they go in and they add like the, the police officer's face when he's about to realize the logs about to collide with him. Like that, seeing that adds quite a lot to the moment. Um, and they're just so smart with like the little tiny details they place throughout this because seeing that friend pop his face out the window right before he's killed makes it that much more like ghastly, you know? Oh, definitely, definitely. But what we find out that her premonition came true. And so she's taken to the police station with the rest of the group that would have died if it wasn't for her. And of course they're skeptical, you know, I mean, think about it. If, you know, you were brought into a police station after something like this and they were holding you because this broad in front of you in a car in front of you said that she's had a vision, you'd probably be a little skeptical too, but none of these people want to be there. They're like, why are you holding us? In fact, you know, Nora and her son, Tim just kind of are tired of hearing about this premonition. So they get up and leave. Uh, Eugene obviously is not having it either. He's probably the biggest skeptic of the entire group throughout the film. Um, we also get Evan who we find out he, uh, had won the lottery the day before because the sheriff makes a big deal about what a lucky son of a bitch he is. Cause yesterday he won $250,000 in the lottery today. He avoids a major crash that would have killed him. And again, we get a scene with detective Burke and Kimberly that really kind of is a synopsis of the first film where we find out last year on the same day flight 180 uh happened and you know the kids that got off that plane all died horrific deaths uh, that were you know elaborate and coincidental so this is when detective burke does mention you know hey not every one of the kids that got off that flight died clear rivers survived but she's has herself locked in a padded room at the asylum i've got to say that one thing that i find it's both impressive but also at times a little bit distracting is like this movie moves fast like it does not take much time to breathe between scenes there are occasional little character moments i greatly appreciate them they're wonderful building tools for these characters that we do need to come to like um over the course of the movie in order to feel something when they do inevitably die they, they do a great job with it they really do they add these little character moments that really flesh these individuals out for the brief time that they're um on screen so i i really do appreciate it but in moments like this they are very quick to bring in the whole backstory of like, you know, Flight 180, how it's the anniversary. And oh, mm, suspicion. This must be what it is. Like, Kimberly, right off the bat, <laughs> thinks that she's being haunted by the force that cause this this whole incident you you know she suspects it right away and i guess you would having a vision like that like i guess i shouldn't be that surprised by it but it does seem like they're very quick to tie in that backstory but hey they keep a tight fucking shift this thing is moving fast and i am also impressed at how quickly they keep the story going you know the pacing of this film is spot on you never have a chance to get bored it just moves, moves, moves. It's solely, I mean, let's be honest. The film exists solely to set up one elaborate death scene after the other. 
but it works. And what makes it work is the amount of time it takes to set these death scenes up so that you do get to experience a day in the life of the character that the death is about to happen to, which I appreciate. For example, you know, right after this police station scene, the police station scene ends with Kimberly's father showing up and, and getting her from the police station. We cut to Evan who has not left the fact that this, he almost died in this crash really deter him from spending this lot of money because he's going to his apartment with his latest purchases, including a fucking giant, uh, 2003 iMac computer. Oh my God. It looks so dated, but I also get so excited when I see it because it still looks so beautiful and new. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it does. He, he has the iMac, he has boxes of clothes. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, uh, I like the juxtaposition of this new fancy shit he's bringing in and then his apartment, which is just a dump, you know, it's a, to- a total like bachelor's pad. It's dirty. There's dirty dishes everywhere, shit all over the floor. And I'm thinking, dude, you could have spent that $250,000 and bought a house or cleaned up the place. But typical, like single, single straight guy you know he immediately goes in his kitchen he like takes a frying pan of spaghetti and instead of dumping it out the or dumping it in the garbage which we find out that one little thing would have saved his fucking life he throws it out the window yeah yeah he's he's a total douche total douche and played very well for the brief time he's on camera but um there's there's little things he does that uh seem very thought out um i really enjoy this actor's brief performance um i love when he goes to the voicemail and he starts playing back and it's all these girls who are like hey evan it's nikki we met at your friend's party i've been thinking about you call (laughs) me like it's so it's it's absurd but it's also seriously you know this would happen people would come out of the fucking woodworks the shittiest people you know and they'd be trying to hit you up for money and um i don't know it's a fun little story arc that they give this character because it is so brief but it gives him all this room to explore these these little personality traits that make for his death to be quite entertaining oh yeah like he's a total douchey straight guy like he uh, is the the shit that he's cooking? I mean, you you learn what I like about this is you learn so much about who this guy is, and we all know somebody like this. Like he, you know, he throws a, a pot on the stove, and he he has like leftover Chinese in his refrigerator that's like not even in a closed container that he takes out uh, and throws it on the counter because he's going to cook that. And then he has like a box of mozzarella sticks, and in the meantime, he takes his shirt off so that he can cook. You know, and uh, you just learn, like you said, you just learn so much about this character with these little actions. So he starts cooking his mozzarella sticks. In the meantime, he has those, uh, we all know what they are, those alphabet magnets that used to be very popular that people would have on the refrigerator. He has those on his refrigerator and it spells out the word, hey, but when he's not paying attention, one of them falls into the container of Chinese food and he immediately takes the Chinese food, puts it in the microwave. And while his mozzarella sticks are cooking, he takes out a ring that he must have just bought and puts it on and is admiring this ring that I think is quite ugly, but he is very proud of it. And uh, yeah, in the meantime, all of this girl, all these girls are calling him and it's funny. Like they're like, oh, I heard you just won the lottery. We should really hook up. And it's just that classic case of if you win a lot of money, people that you haven't talked to in years are going to come out of the woodwork, right? Yeah, definitely. But he ultimately gets startled because of the 
spark that the magnet in the microwave causes causes a giant like explosion not explosion but giant spark that startles him so he drops his ring into the sink and it goes down into the garbage disposal so he has to reach in and and try to get get that and his hand gets stuck and while his hand is stuck the food on the stove catches fire and the microwave literally blows up i mean it's just one thing after another and he literally cannot get his hand out of this garbage disposal and we the audience are like oh shit he's gonna burn to death he's gonna catch fire it's gonna suck because he just took a shirt off you know you don't want to see his bear but it's but he ends up getting his hand out just in time as the fire kind of engulfs the entire kitchen and the apartment and he's spraying um he, he first he knocks the pan off of the stove with uh, a paper uh, a towel and it flies off the stove and then catches the apartment on fire. So he's trying to put everything out with the fire extinguisher and it just, it gets too much. It spreads too quickly. So, and there's this moment where the windows that are open slam shut. So he has to break the window to get out onto the fire escape. And as he's climbing down, the ladder gets stuck. And just as it's stuck and he's there, this whole kitchen explodes. This whole sequence is... And we're going to say this about every single one of these buildups, but this whole sequence up to this point is so meticulous. The detail of the magnet, just because there's little things I got to like point it out, just seeing that little detail of the magnet just dropping into the box, like completely feasible, could totally fucking happen. But as it happens, bing, bang, boom, one thing after another, it's all building up to something bigger. And and you as the, the audience are witnessing something he's just completely oblivious to because he's so caught up in his moment of of wealth, you know? But I also want to acknowledge his nipple piercing. I just want to bring that up. The nipple, you see a nipple piercing. It's cute. And it comes back into play later with Tony Todd. But yeah, so it does build up to this huge fucking explosion. And at this point, you've already expected like four or five different scenarios that would have led to this guy's death that did not end up occurring. So you're like guessing the whole time. What is it going to be? What is it going to fucking be? And it is what you would least expect, right? It was, it's something I would never have guessed, which is very cool because most of the death scenes are like that. But he, when the explosion happens, he falls off of the fire escape ladder and um, he's able to get up as he's standing up. He looks up and he's like, God damn, I'm one lucky. I'm one lucky son of a bitch. And he takes a step to walk. And what does he do? He steps right in the fucking pile of spaghetti that he just dumped out the window, which causes him to slip and fall backwards again, right onto his back onto shattered glass, which looks painful as hell. And he just lays there for a moment. I'm like, dude, get up. Because what happens is the ladder falls and it stops literally maybe six inches from his face. I know at that moment, once the minute that ladder stopped, my ass would have rolled out of the way. Oh, absolutely. He, he doesn't. Instead, he's like, what the fuck? Right as the ladder falls, the remainder six inches right through his fucking eyeball. Oh my god, this this effect is so fucking good. I mean, it looks so good. It is it's just fucking gnarly. You see the whole fucking thing. It cuts away pretty quick, but it gives you just enough. It is such a great introductory kill in the sense of individual kills per character. Because again, that's what this franchise is known for. And it, it's succeeded so many times when you think about it. Like you touched on it earlier that I wouldn't say there's actually a necessarily a bad 
final destination. There's just some that aren't as good. But even the ones that I would say are weaker in their overall execution have several moments that are memorable. But this one does have the most, and it opens so strong and it sets the bar really high and then it just continues to like (laughs) go higher it's really impressive yeah after this after poor evan is dispatched we do get a montage of various the various survivors of the crash going about their daily lives like we have cat on the treadmill talking to her mom i do like that she's on the treadmill working out but she's smoking a cigarette while she's doing it i love her I love her. I fucking love Kat. I love Kat too. We get like Rory at a party, you know, smoking some dope and everything. And what we find out is that the a news broadcast comes on and it is about Evan's death. They're like, oh, a lottery winner was killed in a freak accident. And they all see this and we all, we get all of their reactions, which is cool. Cause they're like, oh shit, we know this guy. He was survived this accident with us. Um, and so Kimberly sees this as well. So it's like her first indication that, um, uh, Oh, you know, something may be going on here. Yeah. There's also a moment with Thomas where he's already like, you could, you could see that Thomas is starting to really kind of explore the whole tie into flight 180. I mean, they give you quite a montage of imagery of him looking at newspaper clippings and uh, strategically placed photos of all of the individuals who died on websites that give you all of the information you could possibly need in case you somehow have not picked up on the storyline at, at this point of the first film. Um, yet again, it's made very, very clear to you that people were killed after surviving a goddamn airplane crashing. Uh, but yeah, you get you get more imagery of that. And I do say, at least with Thomas, you start to learn about his connection to the initial incident sooner than the rest, you know, because this is a plot point that comes up. Um, and at least with Thomas's character, like they do make it clear that he is somebody who has already established a connection with the flight 180 incident. Um, he helped clean up the remains of um, Sean William Scott's character, I think, after the whole being plowed over by the train. Um, And so he has this distinct memory of that. And so he instantly, I think, has some suspicion that something, something supernatural could be at play. And I normally wouldn't buy it this early on into the film with this character, but they do play him as very, like, kind thoughtful, sensitive. For being a male character, he has a lot of warmth to him. Um, and it it doesn't come off as, I think, uh, cheesy as it could uh, with other characters. Does that make sense? It does. He seems very contemplative and he is a character that is not going to not take something seriously because it might not sound, you know, logical. Um, and I think he is smart enough to know, to realize that what happened with flight 180 was extremely baffling, you know, and, and very eerie. The fact that the kids that got off the plane were killed shortly afterwards. And now knowing that, you know, Evan was just killed in the same scenario with experiencing what Kimberly's did with her premonition. I think he, it's very smart of the writers to make him at least be a a little bit more open to the idea that there could be, like you said, something supernatural at work because, you know, with the Kimberly character, she puts, she puts 
she gets into action right away. And I think that that makes the two of these characters quite the, the successful duo, you know, and the fact that they both are going to find out what the fuck's going on. What can they do to prevent it, to save these other people? It's not even really about themselves. And so, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting way to paint the character because besides like Eugene who, eh, you know, we don't get a lot of like major conflict between the characters like, Oh, you're, this is bullshit. Yes. Eugene does that, but it doesn't last very long. No, they realize pretty quick that shit is going down. And it's because of the persistence of the Kimberly character and of, I think Sheriff Burke as well. He's or officer Burke. He's not the sheriff. Uh, he, Cause he, he here in a few minutes, he even calls a meeting to his apartment so that they can s- discuss what they can do to in essence survive. But we do get a scene with Nora tucking Tim in, which is a very sweet scene because we it's hammered home that this is a, you know, a widower with her, her teenage son that she loves and cares about. She gives him a pill, a sleeping pill because he has a dentist appointment tomorrow. And he, she knows that it, you know, he has a lot of anxiety when it comes to the dentist. So she wants him to get a good night's sleep. He does ask, do you think, you know, that the guys this morning at the police station were just BSing us? And she says, yeah, they were. Nora is a skeptic too, but in a more quiet, kind of passive way. You know what I mean? Eugene is more vocal about it. She's way more passive and and dismissive. Uh, And just kind of a meek, sweet character that you can tell has been through a lot. Her husband recently passed away and you can tell it's definitely affecting her. She's such an unexpected character for a film like such as this. Like she is such an everyday woman. You know, she, like you said, she's meek. She's the opposite of sexy. She feels very like believable uh, in the sense of how she's portrayed as, as someone who I feel could be on uh, in the, in the crowd next to you, you know? Um, and I appreciate about that, about the character because it instantly makes you want to feel something additional for her because there's just a sadness to the character. Uh, there's one thing I think that's really important that I don't want to get too far from it because we're on the verge of overlooking it, but it has to be acknowledged in the midst of this montage Thomas is, like I said, he's looking at this website. He's looking at this this very elaborate website that gives you just excessive amounts of backstory on everything that happened to the Flight 180 survivors. You see a photo of Terry's mangled body, which is quite effective, uh, images of everybody else who died uh, and how they died uh, very clearly. Like you're seeing a lot of this imagery like uh, right up in your face. I'm shocked that they would be able to find these photos. <laughs> but, um, you know, if this is in the reality, in the real world, but somehow, some way, they got their hands on them. But uh, it, it is also brought up via newspaper clipping that Alex, the survivor from the first film, as played by Devin Sawa, was shockingly and mysteriously killed by a falling brick. Uh, and that thus leaving the one and only clear rivers to be the only survivor from the original film. Um, and we talked a little bit about Alex before. Um, and while I say I, I do prefer Kimberly just because I'm, I'm such a fan of her. I have no issues with Alex. I think he was quite the effective lead for the opening installment of this, of the series. Um, and I feel like having that explained away via newspaper clipping it's very unsatisfying. I mean, I'm sure there's reason for it. 
why ever he wouldn't want to come back. I mean, I think that was a foolish choice if it was by choice because the series has somehow managed to sustain enough that we're getting a goddamn sixth entry, like we mentioned. I would love to have a, a, a through character uh, that carries through the franchise for several episodes. I mean, Tony Todd is the closest thing we're going to have. But um, I think that, you know, just kind of lightly touching on explaining away that Alex was killed and and that's that and we're moving on. It does feel like something is missing from the story because I really feel like there should have been a little bit more of his presence. So he, since he was so vital to setting up the mythology that exists within this series. I get that. I get that. I don't, I haven't seen the original final destination for years. So I guess I never made the connection that in the first final destination, we actually don't see Alex die. Um, at the end of the film, he's still alive. So it didn't, it didn't really snap with me, um, until like the third viewing of this, like, Oh wait, was Alex, Alex did not die in the first film. So yeah, it is a odd choice. You know, they could have even done something as simple as like, you know, I don't want to like overshadow the opening scene of, of this film because it's brilliant, but like think about like hostile Two, what they did, they brought. Jay Hernandez back for that opening scene where we get to see him be killed uh, off. You know, it is, yeah, it is kind of unsatisfying to realize that this kid who fought so hard uh, and was so clever at staying alive. And then we're going to find out, oh, well, yeah, a brick fell on him. It almost seems resentful in a way. Like, I feel like it, in a way it almost feels like he didn't want to come back. So they gave him the lamest possible death. I'm not saying that is the case, but it it just feels like so um, not a part of the story that it, it does seem strange to me. So I just really had to touch on that because I, I do wish that character had some form of closure, but he does not. He was killed by a brick moving on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that leaves us then with the one and only Clear Rivers. Oh, God, who, a river so clear. Who Kimberly is able to look up the map quest. I, I love the map quest. I Do you remember map quest and having oh, to print course. out direction? Yeah. So yeah. she gets on her little computer, pulls up the map quest directions to Stony Brook Institute, where Clear is basically living her life voluntarily in a padded room. Uh, I do like the fact that like when she gets to this hospital, the head nurse makes her relinquish pretty much everything, like any, everything this woman stopped short of making her undress and walk in naked. Yeah. And Kimberly's like, um, is she dangerous? And the nurse is like, Oh no, honey, she probably thinks you are. So she goes into Clear's room and it is a padded room. Even the floors are padded. There is a elaborate web of photos of the victims of flight 180 and, and connecting how they died. Clear is, you know, Bless her heart for allowing Kimberly to come and see her, but she's pretty dismissive of the whole thing. I'll say it, and I'll say it, and I'll say it again a million times over. Give me Allie Larder any day of the week, but I can't sit here and say that I think she gives a good performance of this film. I can't. She seems very overall just like phoning it in like it i feel like every, everything she's saying is like she's angry she's pissed 
She's resentful of what happened to her friends, and nobody's going to tell Clear Rivers how to do what she's going to fucking do. Like, she's just got a lot of hostility, and that's kind of like all she has. And it does make for her character to seem very kind of one-dimensional. A lot of times I feel like I can just see Allie Larder acting, and it's just weird, especially when she's acting opposite A.J. Cook, who seems so much more like natural and understanding of her character i guess maybe it felt like a, a a weird direction to take clear rivers as compared to the character in the first film because she doesn't feel anything like the first clear rivers down to her goddamn fucking bangs now a sensible blonde in a leather jacket like it just it feels kind of like a completely different character in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was I was going to ask that if if you thought that this version of Clear Rivers kind of matched the the one we got in the first film. Um, and you know, I I don't know, I don't know. There is something a little bit stilted about her performance. Um, it's hard to put your finger on it, but compared to the rest of this the the cast, it's she just seems like she's not fully embracing the material or she's not fully like into this particular film. I don't, I don't know. Maybe she didn't want to do it. Who knows? But there, yeah, there's definitely something off with her character. And sometimes it just seems like she doesn't even want to be there. No. Yeah. And I think this particular scene kind of is the first little hint that we get of that i picked up on it i don't know other others maybe think she's oscar worthy who knows but it really feels like ali larder herself didn't really want to do this yeah and you know i mean what else was she doing at the time um, that's what i want to know honey you gotta you gotta you got two good paychecks from this franchise so deal with it yeah she is very like you know dismissive of of Kimberly Kimberly tells her, you know, Hey, we were, I was supposed to die. Clear is like, well, good luck. <laughs> You're all on death's list. now. nothing really you can do. She's a total bitch about it. She's a complete fucking bitch. And it, it is a little, um, it's, it's a surprising reintroduction to the character. She has absolutely no like likable traits to her whatsoever to start. Um, she's just a complete cunt <laughs> to the demure, just pleasant just overall pleasant kimberly well my question is if she was if she was gonna if she knew that she was gonna be a bitch to kimberly for coming and visiting her why did she even agree to let her come and visit i i know yeah i I got a lot of questions for fucking Allie larder as clear rivers but for some reason she brings her to her padded room which i'm sorry i'm just gonna say it okay maybe this is like the last ditch effort but don't tell me that there aren't ways that you could die in that fucking padded room. Like, is death just like, well, I give up. She's in a padded room. No, like death will make like a fucking airplane crash. Into the building. <laughs> or I don't know, a massive fire that'll consume the ward. Like, how has this been the solution? Death will make like one of the pins pop out from the fucking uh, display, elaborate display she has up on the wall and uh, stab through her eyeball and kill her. I don't know. Choke her with the string. There's so many ways that Clear Rivers, in my mind, should still have died up to this point. But somehow, I guess this was a solution. That's one of the big question marks of this film. Is like you're ta- you're telling me a padded room is going to stop death, death, the inevitable. That's the whole thing throughout this whole film. Is you can't stop death. How many times do we hear that? Tony Todd says it. 
the guy at the beginning in the news broadcast says that you can't stop death. Well, apparently you can by just living in a padded room. It, it, it's one of the kind of sort of like the minor inconsistencies, but Kimberly does tell her, you know, but the, the only thing is in my premonition, my friends died last, not first. So there's something with the order. And this is like, this is where it becomes convoluted, I think, because I'm trying to wrap my head around it and clears like, oh, oh, it does you mess with death's order. Oh, and Kimberly's like, well, yeah, but what can I do? And she's like, oh, you just got to watch for the signs. But then when Kimberly tells them, uh, tells her that her friends are um, the ones that died are like not in the same order as as one Allie Larder's Clear Rivers would have suspected it. She has a moment where she's like, wait. It was backwards. Yeah. Like it's like it is the least believable like delivery delivery of a line possible. Like I just see like nothing but like, <laughs> like just sadness in Ellie Larder's eyes. Like she fucking must hate this character. I don't know, man. It just it seems so awkward. Not to go back to that, but specifically this moment where she's like, like basically saying to uh, Kimberly, like you've got to go like, <laughs> like it's just she's just such like a bitch and there's nothing more to her than that yeah well all she tells kimberly is that she needs to look out for the signs you know um and clears like well i'm done with you you can leave now she tells kimberly basically get get out of her room and kimberly's like i think you're a selfish scared bitter bitch and you're already dead and clears like just go and as kimberly leaves she like turns around to the camera and flips clear off in the camera and clear like kind of reacts but like doesn't really do much (laughs) i don't know but you can tell you can tell that clear is kind of at least like okay i should have done more like you can tell that that she's having some uh, internal conflict at least which i kind of do appreciate the, the journey she has of like being like i need to step up here and be uh, uh, willing to help these people because I know how hard this is. At least you do get that angle from the character or else she would be completely unlikable. But she does step up eventually. She does come into play and become more of a pivotal factor. Yeah, so Officer Burke is conveniently waiting for Kimberly when she gets back to her house and he says that the survivors are having a meeting at his place tonight to discuss, you know, what they are going to do to try to stay alive. And at the same moment, she sees, uh, she has this vision of pigeons, a flock of pigeons, like flying at her. These fucking, these fucking pigeons. And she's like, pigeons. (laughs) And like, there are multiple moments in which people scream pigeons out loud in this movie. Um, And pigeons become like a pivotal factor here for a couple of scenes. They do. She's like the pigeons. I I think pigeons are going to kill Nora and Tim. We have to find them. So they make it a a mad dash to find Nora and Tim. We do get a, a small moment, a small cut back to clear in her cell her padded room reading the newspaper article about the crash and and the fact that um evan died and she uses this i guess to decide that she does need maybe need to help these people so we get this moment where she takes off her bracelet because we all we also find out she's voluntarily there she's not committed she is voluntarily there as a means to try to stay alive which, like, okay, like, I guess, like, what else would you fucking do at that point? Like, I guess I just would hope for death or just take my own life. But I feel like death, like, if I tried to take my own life, I feel like death would be like, nope, not on my watch. And be like, I'm doing this. This is my job. Um, But, 
Yeah, I, I, in a way, I almost feel like, you know, they're trying to give us a fan service. I bet Devin Sawa wouldn't come back. So they fucking took Clear Rivers instead. Um, and like, it's not until the second half of this that she becomes more of a palatable introduction. But I almost in some ways just wish it was just Kimberly leading her troops into the fray because she's more than capable. It's not like I feel like I need another strong female, you know? Yeah, Kimberly could have taken the helms of this movie because she is a go-getter. I mean, she's right away, she's the one that makes the effort to go and find clear to figure out what they need to do to survive. So obviously this Kimberly character is not a weak, you know, mild little girl that's not going to try to confront anything. She's going full force. I I mean, I, I think that Clear River's character gets a little bit more tolerable as the film goes on for sure. But yeah. Um, we cut to Tim, Tim, he's at his dentist appointment, uh, and you know, he, he's taken in to have his teeth, you know, cleaned and have a cavity filled. And, you know, as he's laying in his, the dentist chair, all these pigeons are flying into this window, like in the, the dentist is like, how many times do I have to replace this window because of these damn pigeons? And there's all these construction shit going on outside and outside in the lobby Nora's waiting for him and we see this fish tank and this fish tank springs a leak causing the cord to get submerged in water and spark and it's just like all of these little things kind of commence into one moment that is like an oh shit moment and it's when Tim who the doctor can't really administer Novocaine because he keeps getting startled by these pigeons every time they fly into the windshield or the, the window. So he in turn gives poor Tim laughing gas to put him out. But it seems like Tim can feel what's happening to him because, but he can't like say anything because like as the doctor's drilling, you can tell it's like painful to him. A tear is running down his, his eyeball and, it just makes anybody that is afraid of the dentist cringe. Oh, I mean, what a what a great idea, like in the sense of like, let's pursue things that make people actually like uncomfortable and scare them. I mean, the dentist for sure, man. Like, I mean, how many people do I know who feel queasy about going to the dentist? I don't love going to the fucking dentist. So I can relate to a certain extent watching this. And they do such a great job of just making it uncomfortable before even bringing the, the supernatural elements into play, like showing the tears running down his face as the dentist is drilling into his teeth. It just like feels very restricted. Like I almost feel like I can feel the clamps holding the mouth open. Like they get so into his mouth and it just feels like very like ugh, invasive. Um, so when this whole thing does start to go down with, you know, the whole thing with the, uh, the, the fish tank and then this whole little fish display that's above him uh, when the uh, nitrous oxide, is that what it is? Is that one like, yeah, where the, where the, t- the tanks get, um, get uh, like, I forget, like they get like something gets knocked, uh, the cord gets knocked out so the levels change. And then uh, he's only getting uh, basically knocked out at this point. So he's uh, starting to lose consciousness and, uh, you're seeing this whole display of this like fish, like kind of like rubber fish that kind of floats above the chair and one of them just drops into his mouth. And it's so uncomfortable because, you know, he's just losing consciousness. He's just, you know, getting drugged so heavy that he's passing out at this point. And you could see this thing like going into his mouth and 
oh, I feel like I can feel it like in the back of the palate of my throat, like that sensation. I don't know, man. It, this this moment makes me so queasy. It's a different kind of fear. Like this movie is really good at being shocking, but it's also really good at just making you uncomfortable. Yeah, it's definitely a cringeworthy scene because he's he's in the he's in the dentist chair by himself. Nobody is in the room with him because the dentist has to rush out to the lobby because a pigeon actually busted through the glass and they're trying to get it out. So poor Tim is in, strapped in this chair, losing consciousness with this plastic rubber fish in his mouth that's going deeper down his throat when just at the in the nick of time, the nurse comes in and, and pulls it out of his mouth. Oh my God, this chick's face, like, it's exactly how I would be. She's like, oh, shit. She's like, we almost had a fucking lawsuit, which, I mean, let's be real. Inevitably, someone else is about to have a lawsuit because, again, what happens is is definitely, I think, not what you would have anticipated though this scene did a very good sign at um a very good job at giving you a sign uh, kind of hinting at what's to come because if you look outside the window the whole time this is happening you see this construction going on outside it's very prominent because you keep hearing the audio of it um but you keep paying attention to what's going on in the dentist's office because you're in the space, but you know the construction isn't somehow going to play some factor. So when Tim comes running outside from the, the dentist's office and sees this flock of pigeons <laughs> and Kimberly and Thomas come running out of nowhere, they're screaming, the fuck out the pigeons! <laughs> like just screaming at the top of their lungs. And, and, being a fucking asshole because this kid's a he's a little prick the whole time he's a bit of a dick like i'm happy he's the next one to go he runs he startles the fucking pigeons they go flying and this of course startles the, the lift operator who's lifting this massive piece of sheet glass and i mean honestly what transpires here is breathtaking for me as a horror fan like god damn this has to be the single best body smash <laughs> I have ever seen ever captured on camera. The way this kid goes out is j- glorious. It's gnarly. It is one of the best body smashes of all time. It does not. The camera stays on it and you see this poor kid be, <laughs> be smashed by this large pane of glass, but the little prick, you know, he did it himself. He scared these pigeons. The pigeons fly up into the construction worker and cause him to, have to swat swat him away, and in, in the process, he hits the release gear on the crane, and it drops the huge pane of glass right down on poor Timothy. It smashes this kid like it's a gnarly effect. You see him like you see his body just like buckle and smash, and oh, in front of his poor mother. Oh my God, it's it's such a, a traumatizing experience for her because like the moment of realization, like there's no way at all this child could have survived this massacre. And he's like, I mean, he's like a teenager, but he's supposed to be like, what, 16 maybe? Like he's a punk, but he's still technically like a, a kid. For the, He's a teen. So it, it always, I always remember feeling kind of shocked that they, they off this kid so gnarly because he's, you know, he's overall not, that old um it's just a brutal fucking kill and the mom is just is absolutely uh in in shock i mean her breakdown is actually 
pretty well played. Again, considering a goddamn Final Destination film, uh, they let it linger on her reaction and her just complete uh, horror of, of what she just experienced. And she does a, a pretty damn good job just breaking down. Uh, it, it's a really uncomfortable and sad and just shocking sequence. Yeah, Detective Burke and Kimberly did as well. So there's this moment where he takes her home and they're just both very melancholy. And as they pull into the driveway and she's getting ready to get out of the car, who shows up? Clear fucking rivers. The river most clear. Clear rivers. (laughs) And she is now here to help. So her idea of helping them is to take them to... The crematorium in the middle of the cemetery where one Tony Todd is preparing to cremate Evan, who we see. I mean, I'm always here for fucking Tony Todd any day of the week. And I do love that he has been a consistent for the most part through almost all of the entries. I think there's what one or two he's not in maybe. But um, yeah, I love that he's here. But this scene throws me for a loop because and i love like we love this movie but we have been very openly criticizing a lot of choices that are made over the course of this film and i gotta say when they walk into this like this morgue i mean do do morgues actually ever like really look like that and i'm genuinely asking this as a question i don't know how often am i in a morgue but i'm sorry this looks like something from the dark ages like it looks like a set that i would imagine being used in a film about like the plague um it's filled with smoke it's moist and dripping it seems to be built out of rock um it certainly does not look like what i would imagine an operating morgue to look like but it is very ominous and it does lure the presence of one tony todd who again always welcome in this fucking house that voice yeah he's kind of underutilized (laughs) wasted here like this scene could have been easily chopped from the film and it wouldn't have have caused any disruption to the plot um i feel like they did it just to get him in there because he repeats exactly what clear says in the padded room and what she tells kimberly and he repeats exactly what the dude at the beginning of the film says although he does add something clear is demanding that he tell them how you know how they can survive and he's like well you can't cheat death um and he's like oh and you're looking quite lovely today and he's like and he tells her um people are always the most alive right before they die wouldn't you say very ominous like he's basically He's basically telling her you're about to die because he just got done telling how great how great she looks. Oh, he's so ominous. Well, like, uh, and here's my question about Tony Todd overall over the course of this series is what uh, what I've never exactly understood his his exact like purpose to the franchise. Like, is he an exact like is he actually like a physical manifestation of what is death? Like, is that actually like death's like kind of like physical form where he's very aware and conscious to what's going on? Like, how does Tony Todd possess this knowledge exactly? Is it because he's like, like a caretaker who handles bodies? He just, he just knows. He just happens to know all of this. Like, I don't know. It, it, it never has really explained just what Tony Todd's purpose is in the franchise, but they still keep bringing him back. I don't get it. 
it's for them to say Tony Todd is in this movie. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of the same thing with like Hellfest. Remember Hellfest? The movie with him in it and he's in the he's in it for literally like 30 seconds. It's just it's just kind of a novelty to be able to say you have Tony Todd, the actor who played Candyman in your film. Because I think even in part three, he's in part three as well, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, but I but I think he has something to do with like the carnival though in part three in the beginning. I don't know. Yeah, it's just odd. His only kind of real purpose here is to tell Kimberly because she's like, you need to tell us what we can do to survive. And he does say only new life can defeat death. And she's like, well, what do you mean by that? And he says an introduction of a life that wasn't meant to be can stop the chain of death. Okay. Like, I mean, here's the deal. I'll, I'll take it. Like I get, they're really reaching and trying to create and like an evolution a growth off of the story that was initiated in the in the original film. And one like one I guess one tiny issue I have with the franchise in general is that it always feels like it's not really ever building to some kind of conclusion, which I guess you can say about any kind of like horror slasher film. Um but at least like there are continuous story arcs that carry through much of the franchises we love with final destination every time it's just a new group of people getting killed in gruesome ways the only thing that ties them together is flight 180 it keeps coming up over and over and over and it's not it's kind of just like aimlessly drifting until finally five brought it full force full uh full circle which was i agree on you on that you mentioned that earlier five is phenomenal i would say five is my second favorite almost in a way but uh yeah i feel like this movie definitely tried to expand upon what was established in the first film. And I appreciate that. It's just so difficult to do that when the force that is coming for these people is literal death. Like it's not like someone in a fucking hockey mask. It's not someone who's just coming for you in your dreams. It is death, which is, is always present. If anything, at times when death is not present, in this, I wonder why. Why it is death? Like, is death like trying to find them, or like I, I thought death is just always looming. So, like, I don't know. Um, I can't really sit here and question the plot developments of Final Destination Two. What I know, what the storyline is, but I do still at times wish, like, I wish this had just a little more potential to develop into something different. You know, I will say I, I love this movie. I, I like I said, it's probably it fights with five to be my favorite of the franchise. However, if I have to admit there, there is a huge aspect of the film I don't really care for. And it is this one right here, particularly because of the payoff, which is zilch. If you get what I'm saying. Like what we find out is they take, you know, that's the end of Tony Todd's scene is basically him. It's, it's literally maybe a 45 second scene and he's gone uh, at the gas station. And I do like the fact that you say, you know, you mentioned the fact that death sh- is, should always be around us, right? It, what, what is it doing if it's not? And I think this film particularly does a really good job at kind of keeping the audience on our toes, because when we are at this, when we are at this gas station with clear Kimberly and detective Burke, there are all kinds of things going on around them that we as the audience think at any time one, one of these characters is going to bite it. Uh, there's a scene like with this kid walking out to the pumps and he starts to, he lights a cigarette, 
right at the gas pumps and, I, and clear hits him. She's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, you can suck my dick, you bitch or something like he's, that. Biatch. Biatch, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then like, as they're talking, Kimberly has this vision uh, that causes her to actually have a physical reaction. And the vision is her. She sees a, she sees a, a van going into a, a, a white van going into a lake when she's retelling what her vision is to clear and detective Burke, all of this shit is going on around them. Like, and clear is recognizing it. And like, there's potentials for explosions. There's workers across the street. There's a car that swerves out of the way to avoid hitting something and comes into the parking lot. It's just like everything. Like you said, death is all around us. There's all these little things that at any moment could lead to death. They don't, but what it does is it allows the group to remember or Kimberly to specifically remember the pregnant woman that was in the white van. And this gives them the idea that, Hey, what he said, the introduction of a life that wasn't meant to be, it has to be the baby. So if we can find this woman and she gives birth to this baby that was meant to die, then we can cheat death. So Burke is like, Hey, I can do that. I'm a police officer. So he puts out an APB for, this pregnant woman, Isabella. Definitely, I would say the the weakest aspect of the film is this whole like, gotta find Isabella because you're right. It ends up not having a payoff. And so because of that, like you're like, why did we invest so much time in this? Like, I, I don't know. I feel like the, the plot could have maybe been um, spent developing these characters that we really do very much enjoy even more. I wouldn't have minded that. It feels kind of like time wasted, but not enough to really like kill my spirit for the film. No, you know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it, there's not enough of it to slow down the film, but I love the actress. I love Justine Machado. She's been in some great stuff. She was in, like I said, six feet under, she was in queen of the South. I love her. I, she could have been totally removed from this film and I would have been fine. And in fact, it would have not have changed the film one bit. That's how much the character really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. And we get this whole plot device where they're tracking down this pregnant woman. And there are a couple scenes like of, of her being pulled over and her putting, being put in jail. I'm like, okay, enough with this character. I'm, I'm, I'm I, I don't want to, why are we, pulling ourselves away from this main group of people that we've spent so much time with to see this woman. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, at Burke's apartment, Rory shows up and again, we get this kind of, this is like another random scene that I don't know what its purpose was. I guess maybe to give us a little insight into Rory's quirky personality, but he gets on the elevator with a guy who, he's trying to have a conversation with his foot gets stuck as he's getting into the elevator and it won't open, which gives us kind of an ominous foreshadowing. But when he gets in the elevator, the guy that's in the elevator with him is like, I've told maintenance to fix this elevator now for about a month. And I don't know what their problem is. And Rory's looking at him. He's like, you know, you got something on your face. I could wipe it off for you. And he's like, looking at his finger. He's like, here, let me wipe it off for you. Uh, and it just it's weird it just goes (laughs) it's very weird it just kind of goes nowhere the guy's like "Uh, no thanks and gets off the elevator but you know what man i i gotta say it moments like these are are because it's weird it feels um very specific for the character and it's consistent with what rory's character is which is this like fucking druggy mess who's just like out there and his choices are weird his dialogue is weird and i because i think he's one of the most defined characters of the film because 
everything he does seems very much along the lines of who this character is, what he does, and just how he acts. He's a coke addict. He's always doing coke. I mean, the, the volume of cocaine that Rory consumes over, what, the 48 hours, maybe three days at most, that we track these characters, like, that alone should kill him. That should be how death kills Rory, is just the cocaine pulsing through his veins until his heart stops. Um, but somehow he keeps on trucking. Uh, but I, I like these moments, man. I do think that they really take time to give these characters these little beats that give you the quirks and the weird little traits that define who they are. And I, I think that's why we enjoy them so much. And yeah, I, it, it's just a very weird scene because no other character kind of gets a little moment like that, that is so like quirky and, and goofballish. But I, I appreciate it. It kind of, it makes me chuckle, but I was like, this just is a very odd thing to include in this film. I guess it's a little bit of comic relief before we get into this, the rest of the film, which becomes very serious until like the last couple of minutes of the film, because when then the apartment Nora is there and she's basically a closet case, she asks for a Valium, which cat gives her. And as cats like here, only take half Nora just takes the whole thing in her mouth and takes it. Um, Kimberly, Again, Kimberly is a girl of action. You got to love this. She gives them all cell phones and tells them that if they need to call her or if she calls, sorry, if she calls them and tells them, you know, um, something like Subway, then they need to prepare for that and go to the high, uh, get, get away from a Subway, go up high, get, get away from anything that could potentially be a, a Subway could get to. Because she is the one that's primarily having these visions. Eugene, on the other hand, is like, man, I'm not taking this shit. I, I, I'm i in control of my life. You are some crazy bitch. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going home. And as he gets his jacket, he accidentally causes this, like, what is it? A golf ball to fall off the chair and it rolls into a mouse trap, causing it to like fling up and hit a thing on the wall where a rope is securing a kayak. And the kayak comes swinging down and literally misses clear's head by like a millimeter. It is very elaborate, but I mean, what about this franchise is not elaborate. The goal is to be elaborate, but this seems kind of strange because it does feel like death is like making itself known. It's like, don't forget I'm here. I'm always coming for you. Like it doesn't, it doesn't seem like conducive to death's plan to make itself seem so obvious, but it happens. I now, Everyone's kind of had the fear of God put in them. So everyone starts cooperating a little bit more. Yeah, he's a little less skeptical now. He's like, if death's after you, why don't you leave us the fuck alone? And Cambria's like, she's the only one that's been through this uh, you know, before. In the meantime, we cut to the cops pulling over the pregnant Isabella and telling her that the van she's in is rep- has been reported stolen. So it is Officer Burke's way to get her secluded and get her into a safe place, right? I mean, it's it's at least it's utilizing like him being like an officer. Like it's it makes sense. Like the choices that are being made, um, it doesn't feel like it's just thrown together. It's a weird direction to take the story, but it seems like thought out. I'm just not completely jiving with some of the decisions made. But at least it's competent. Like it's over explained as fuck to make sure you're following along. We hear we hear the story of what's going on and death's fucking design and what death's coming for us. We hear it explained by like seven different people, multiple occasions. Um, and at, at this point, if you don't understand, I don't know what more, what song and dance they have to give to you to make it clear that 
death is coming, but new life is the key. And that's why this pregnant woman is so fucking important. <laughs> Back at the apartment, Nora decides she is going to leave. And it's a very like somber moment where she tells Kimberly, you know what? If it's my time to go and to be in heaven with my family, I'm fine with that. And she leaves and uh, Eugene follows her um, and he reiterates that he is in charge of his life, not some superstitious bullshit that they are spouting out. Kimberly gives him a phone and she's like, will you please give this to Nora? Even though you don't believe, please give this to her. So he does, he leaves. And then Rory is putting some shit in a closet and causing um, some mischief because he, the shit he's putting in, he tries to reach the top shelf and everything falls out on top of him. In the meantime, Nora and Eugene get into the elevator and there is this pleasant man with a box of hands with, or what are they? These are hook hands, right? Prosthetic hook hands. This, this, this man is known as man with hooks and this man, and he's holding a box full of prosthetic limbs, but they're like old school hook limbs. Um, they're very uncomfortable. I mean, just that alone, if I was either of these individuals who was even somewhat considering the idea that death was coming for me, if that elevator door opened, I would say this man is the personification of of death, and I am not getting in this elevator. But they don't seem too phased by man with hooks. Uh, so they get in, and, you know, obviously things go awry. What I find really works for this moment for me is this moment that you mentioned prior with Nora, where she's like, you know, I accept if I'm going to die, I'll be able to, you know, see my family once more, my husband and my child. And she's very sad, and she, you know, she, she goes to plan the funeral. Um, but but as soon as things become threatening, that changes, and she becomes hysterical. Um, because uh, once Rory realizes he's having a sign, a vision, which these signs, like, I mean, is 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 death playing with them? Is death like toying with them? I I don't know how he how they looked at what he saw and made the connection. That that meant that Nora was going to be killed with a man with hooks. Like to me, yeah, I could see, I could see like an image of a man that looks like he had hooks. To me, it looked like a bunch of tree branches, but I could see the image. But how do you look at that and then be like, oh my god, a man with hooks is going to kill Nora? That was a stretch for me. That was a leap that went a little too far, if you ask me. But they all agree that it's a sign that a man with hooks is going to kill Nora. So. Burke rushes to call her with the cell phone. In the meantime, this poor old man, he's a pleasant old man. He just has a, a, a little habit of sniffing women's hair, apparently, because he has just taken a big old whiff of Nora's hair. <laughs> uh, it's a strange choice. And he, and he, got, he gets noticed yeah, as well. Eugene notices and he was like, what the fuck? And the weird guy like pulls back. And so she answers the phone. Well, she drops the phone. So she's bends down to pick it up to answer it. And she can barely hear uh, officer Perk, she's like, well, who is this? What are you trying to tell me? And then she does hear the fact that a man with hooks is going to kill you. And she immediately freaks out because she knows that this guy with a box full of hook hands is right behind her. And she tries to like immediately pull away, but her hair gets caught on one of his hooks in the box. 
And she is like freaking the fuck out and she won't calm down. And if she would have just fucking calmed down and Eugene could have told her, Hey, it's you that got your hair. This guy is not doing anything to you, but she's freaking out and she tries to get out of the elevator, but the elevator closes, leaving her like head. She's twisted around on the outside of the elevator. Her head is inside the elevator. Her body's outside the elevator. Right. And we realize the elevator is broken from that Corey or from the um, Rory scene when he when it wouldn't open when his foot was stuck in it so we know that she's fucked and boy is she fucked oh man because her head is stuck in there she's screaming bloody murder and i really find it chilling and quite sad when she starts screaming i don't want to die yeah it's surprisingly um it goes there for a minute and and i don't always think this movie this movie is all about like uh focusing on the humanity of what happens you know when when death is about to occur, it's always about the splatter. It's about the shock. It's about the, um, just the, how far can they push it? But they rarely really like let the characters in the moment focus on their own humanity and, 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 uh, the fact that they're about to, you know, experience death. They normally don't really take time to dwell on that. So, um, it is extra morbid that you get to see this reaction from her as everyone's trying to help her, um, it, it lingers for a minute and it's very sad, very uncomfortable. Yeah. But I also think it's like realistic. You know, we, we have moments where we think, oh my gosh, yeah, I want to die. And, but I feel like if you're confronted with it as, as boldly as she is, we all realize maybe we don't want to really die. It's easy to say you do. And it's easy to think that it's going to be an easy solution for you. But when you're confronted with it. I think that's a completely different story. And it kind of shows that moment here where she really, yes, she's in a a low point in her life where her son just died, her husband died. So she thinks I have nothing to live for. But again, when she's so blatantly confronted with this death that is going to be horrifically brutal and painful, she realizes, no, this is not what I want. And yeah, it's very sad. She's like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Unfortunately though, the elevator goes up and she's decapitated a la what was her name? Annette, the blonde and hide and go shriek got the same death in the elevator and the head falls inside the elevator. The body falls outside the elevator. Eugene is freaking out, freaking out. He comes back into the apartment and is just fucking screaming about he, I'm in control of my life. Motherfucker. I'm in control of my life. He pulls uh, officer Burke's gun from his waist and holds it up to his head. And we don't think he's going to do it. And this is another moment where I was like, uh, I don't know because how you portrayed this character throughout the film so far, I don't buy that. He is just so easily going to kill himself. Um, but because this character throughout the film has been very strong, he very like, I'm determined to live. I'm in control. And now he saw, because he saw, Nora get killed in this very, yeah, this horrific accident is what it was. And that's going to be enough for him to be like, okay, I'm going to go kill myself now. I mean, I think the actor does a pretty, I mean, as I agree with you on the note, I completely agree, but I do think the actor does a pretty fair job of, in my opinion, of selling it because I mean, the moment when he sees the body, like there is a really upsetting shot after she's decapitated where the, the man with hooks is screaming like a, a banshee. You know, he just witnessed a woman decapitated before his very eyes. And then, you know, you've got this great shot on on uh, Eugene in the corner, just 
flipping his shit. Understandably so, looking at this shot of her head where it's very out of focus, it's actually quite a pretty shot as it reveals the face. But you do see the the build and the climax of, of his you know impending break. He does a good job with it. He sells it, but it doesn't fit the character, in my no, opinion. I agree. I, I, I would have, it would have fit the character more if he, yeah, he could have held the gun to his head and been like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. But then they talked him out of it and he put it down. But no, he literally pulls the trigger. He literally intends to kill himself and he pulls the trigger six times and nothing happens. And, you know, the, the group is shocked. Even Kimberly is like, what the fuck? So she takes the gun from him and she's like, you don't load this gun. And they open the gun and all six bullets were in there. Yeah. They just didn't go off. They were all duds. And they're like, there's no way six bullets were, were duds. And then clear walks in and she's covered in blood. And she's like, well, it wasn't his turn to die. I don't buy that. No, that, that death mean, is going to make you like death wait is going to. No, death is not going to make you wait your turn. If it, if you're going to shoot yourself in the eye to see, this was another thing that was a little bit of an inconsistency because it's never it's never used again in the entire franchise. It just seemed like a silly thing to do. You know, I mean, if someone's going to kill themselves, they're going to kill their. You know, I don't I don't buy the whole. Oh, it wasn't his turn to die. Whatever. Anyways, I do like the fact that Cat's covered in blood, and she's like, "Can we go find the pregnant woman now?" Yeah, I do appreciate like at this point. Most most of that doubt and everything is thrown out the window. Everybody's on the same page, whether they want to be or not. You know, I, I, I do appreciate that now we can move forward with just trying to find a solution, you know, and, 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 and it does kick into high gear. I would say here moving forward, uh, there's not a ton of movie left like this movie. It, it's tight. It moves quick. And it's not like extremely long to begin with. I think it's like a solid maybe hour and a half max, if that. Um, so it, it moves at a pretty fast pace, which I appreciate. But like they're off now, and they're off to see the fucking wizard. All of them together in 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 Cat's SUV, and they're going to go fucking get down to business at this point as a team. They are a team now. They're going to find the pregnant woman. She, unbeknownst to them, is in a jail cell arguing with the deputy about how this is all a mistake when her water breaks. And... There's this kind of comic moment where she's screaming at the deputy and he's fumbling around like Barney Five. And she's like, I'm not going to have my baby in a jail cell. Get me to the goddamn hospital. He's trying to call the sheriff to get the car because they don't have a car there. And she's like, take my van, take my van. He's like, what, what? oh my God, oh God. He's just a bumbling idiot, but he does agree to get her in the van to drive her to the hospital. Well, And I will say, I, I, even though these scenes are very like separate from everything i do like this deputy i think he's actually kind of funny he sells it like he makes it work and she's like you said she's great they're really the only reason that these scenes are um tolerable working tolerable is because at least like they bring they still bring some character and pizzazz to it and he's a fun little addition to the few moments that uh he's in with her you oh know? yeah and she's great at being you know angry and hysterical but so we go back to the van or to the cat's suv where the group is and through conversation casual conversation we find out that all of these survivors have a connection to the victims of flight 180 starting with eugene he just casually says he's like you know what this is really weird because it's not the first time that i've escaped death and he tells a story about how he filled in for a teacher he was forced to fill in for a teacher and 
the teacher that he was in the classroom with before he got pulled got stabbed by a student like two days before he got pulled. Then we find out that um, Burke tells his story about how he avoided death because he got the call of the kid that got Sean Michael, Sean William Scott's character, right? And his partner told him to go and his partner went to this call and got killed in a shootout. Cat avoided death from a gas leak at a bed and breakfast because she was on a bus that splattered Terry. She was on that bus. So, of course, her whole trip got delayed. Rory was in Paris. Uh, and he avoided going to a theater that ended up collapsing and killing everyone inside because he got sidetracked by Carter being killed by the falling sign. And finally, Kimberly tells a story about how she was at the mall with her mother and she got distracted watching a news broadcast of the kid who committed suicide, quote unquote, by hanging himself in the shower, which we know he, he didn't commit suicide, but, um, it caused her not to go out to the vehicle with her mother and her mother ended up getting car jacked and shot. So all of these people would have died anyways, if they wouldn't have, if those kids wouldn't have got off of flight 180. So this is like the second time each of them have escaped death and death is now trying to, according to clear rivers, tie up loose ends. Okay. There've been some developments over the course of the plot that I have found convoluted that I have found kind of like shoehorned into the story. I haven't had like too many huge issues with it, but I've been like aware of the fact that there are aspects of the story that she seemed very forced. This development I think is great. And I would have loved if they would have had a little bit more uh, time to explore this aspect of like the fact that like the, the ripple effect that was occurred uh, that did occur uh, due to certain characters surviving other people whose fates were disrupted as well. What a great plot point. And for me, it outshines some of the issues I do have that have come about thus far for this revelation because it does feel fresh and it feels like a strong upgrade to the story from the first film. And I can kind of turn a blind eye to some of the things I don't love so much about the story development for this moment, which I think is a really strong direction to take the story. I actually 100% agree with you. I think that that's what makes this film a little bit more, have a little bit more depth to it. I was, I really liked this development when they, when I started to realize, okay, what the connections were when they were telling their stories and we were like, oh my God, that was the, that was the teacher he was supposed to. The, oh my God, that was, you know, you start to realize that it's kind of almost a, it's not to the same, doesn't pack the same punch as like the ending to part five, but it's, it's in that same realm, if you know what I mean. And really two and five are the only films that really try to do something, I think, clever in that regard. Three and four are fun popcorn films you know you got some great death scenes in three and four three and four of course has the iconic um tanning tanning bed deaths four is probably the worst of the bunch but it's still just a fun watch those exist solely you know I, I, they're fun and they follow the formula but kind of those exist solely to give us elaborate build-ups to death scenes there's not a lot of substance to them it's like this film and then the fifth one really tried to do something that was a little bit more deep with the material. So like, I think that's why I appreciate them a little bit more. Whereas three and four are just like, Oh, how many people can we kill off in these elaborate setups without really having, 
you know. That's why, Troy, personally, I've been so excited to discuss this film with you is because I know that we have a lot of things we really love about this movie, and there's a few little uh, gripes we have about it as well. And I've heard you voice them before, and I've always been on the exact same page with you about all of these major points that we've discussed. You know, it has its flaws, but God, it's, it is never anything but entertaining. And I can look past the flaws because I still think there are some really strong advances it makes in the sense of storytelling um, with characters I really enjoy watching tell the story. So in that sense, it really can't go too off the tracks for me. Well, just as they finish telling these stories and, and Clear Rivers realizes that, hey, the us getting off of Flight 180 that day did not just affect us. It affected everything that anybody that we were going to come in contact with in the future. And she makes the comment about death is tying up loose ends when the car tire explodes, causing them to almost crash into the same van that the pregnant woman's in. And the car is goes down into a ditch. Uh, a, a big old tree branch crashes through the car and it basically just crashes into the into a ravine. Cat is trapped by this tree limb that has come through. Eugene is hyperventilating. They think he has a collapsed lung. So the ambulance come. There is this moment where the pregnant woman, the deputy wants to go help them. And the pregnant woman's like, no, don't you dare go help them. We got to get to the hospital now. And he, he agrees. He calls it in. Eugene's taken away in an ambulance. This news van that pulls up strikes a leak. So we see gas leaking from this news van, which we know is not good. Poor cat is like pinned inside her vehicle. And in the meantime, this white pipe has bust through the back of the car and narrowly missed hitting her in the head. So it's protruding from the driver's seat and her, it almost went through her head when it on, upon an initial impact, but it did not. She managed to evade it. There's this kind of moment where Rory approaches Kimberly and asks her if when he dies, if it's going to hurt. She's like, I don't know. And then he gives her his wallet and keys, tells Kimberly to go to his apartment, throw away his drugs and his porn so his mom doesn't have to find him when he dies. Another one of these little moments with this character that really kind of work for me, to be honest. Like, he keeps having them and they just keep developing this character in this really unique, interesting individual who feels unlike... I don't know anybody else I can really think of within the genre. He's very much like his own just quirky personality, which honestly makes him super fucking hot. Like I'd fuck the shit out of this guy, even though he's fucking cuckoo bananas. He's still sexy. I don't know why, but yeah, I, I appreciate all of these little moments because they keep going back and forth too, like between the different characters, the interactions cat keeps interacting with this, this like bum fuck, like, <laughs> like like rural white trash redneck hillbilly who is like just sweet as pie but just fucking things up and she's so over it and she she gets to have a few more funny little moments before the inevitable which pisses me off because god i love her character so much yeah a little she calls him jethro <laughs> he's trying to pull her out and he's like she's like god damn it jethro and you know he almost himself almost gets killed uh, and Rory pulls him out of the way just before the news van plows into him. And Rory's like, what are you trying to get yourself killed? You got to pay more attention, kid. And as Rory rocks away, the guy, the, the little redneck kid's like, thank you. But then the firefighters come to get poor cat out of this predicament. And I got to wonder, are firefight would firefighters be this negligent? Wouldn't you think they would see the whole 
kind of the situation and what might unfold. I I think you're right. I do. I I think I think you're very much correct in saying that. Um, I also feel though like the way they play it, like she has this whole moment. Okay, so let, let's be real. Cat's about to die. It's a bummer. But she has this really great moment where, like, the guy has the jaws of life and he's trying to, like, get her out. And she's like, could you be a little more quiet with that? And really dickishly, he's like, oh, yeah, let me put it on silent mode. And she's like, that'd be great. Like, not even aware of how fucking absurd that is. And then, of course, the moment he does that, he, like, jams it in to be a prick. uh, And that ends up being enough of a shock to the vehicle that the airbag goes off and it erupts and it it reveals, it, it deflates to reveal that her head has been completely like speared right through the center of her forehead by the pipe that was right behind her that, you know, it forced her back and the pressure caused it to go right through her fucking forehead. And it's a great reveal. It's a bummer of a death because she's such a cool character, but God, like it comes bam out of fucking nowhere. And all of a sudden this broad's dead. And like, you even see the firefighter, like, Holy fuck. What did I just do? Oh yeah, the airbag smashing against. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. But but then she so she's dead, and we get a we get a nice shot of the aftermath of the pipe sticking out of her forehead. But then all of a sudden, the gas that was leaking from the uh, van causes it to explode because she when cat drops her cigarette after she's dead, and that causes the the gas to ignite and then go to the van and ex, and cause a giant explosion, causing a piece of barbed wire fencing to fly through the air and hit poor Rory who's standing in the middle of the field cutting him in three pieces okay first thing before we get into the meat and bones literally of this death um the fact that they give us a double whammy that like directly transitions from one death to the next um very well played because as soon as she dies her cigarette her which you have seen her smoking all throughout the film she has a very specific cigarette you see it drop it starts a spark that whole trail of oil that you saw earlier from the vehicle that got punctured um immediately goes up into flames and all of a sudden boom this big fucking explosion when the news the news vehicle blows up the effect itself i have to say one of the the greatest digitally enhanced kills of all time I think the reason so many of these kills hit so hard is because CGI was still like kind of becoming more than just like a a garnish. It was starting to become, you know, very prominent in major sequences, but they were still selective about when they used it as much as they used it as compared to now where entire scenes are built around CGI and it's overwhelming. They simply use it to enhance certain aspects and moments. And here, when you watch how this was done, again, on the documentary with the DVD, they still had a prop body that fell apart. It had it had organs and all the fill-ins in it, and then there, a lot of green screen was incorporated. I mean, this is still a lot of practical effects that are being digitally composited. It's not just completely digital things that are being built. So there's still texture and there's still depth to these things that you're seeing, and I think that's why, you know, when you watch this, it really does look shockingly seamless, especially for the era because there really is still a lot of artistry that went into creating this moment. And it's a, it's a great moment. Like, yeah, yeah. I do like the fact that it's just double, it's a double death right then and there. They're not fucking around. You dispatch of the last two or you dispatch of two victims within a matter of, you know, 30 seconds. And, and one of, one of the ways that you're dispatching of the second victim has to do with the first victim's death because she drops her cigarette. 
At the same moment, Kimberly has another vision of um, a doctor like choking. She thinks it's a vision of a doctor choking her. My least, my least favorite development in the whole film, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So she thinks this doctor. What is the doctor's name? It's like Kavarkian or something like that. And she's like, "It's a nurse. She's choking me. Like she's gonna choke Isabella." And it's like, who? What? Who the fuck is this dame coming in in her fucking white jacket, just choking bitches? Like I, I'm sure there's another explanation, Kimberly, to what's going on than this broad just walking in and choking a pregnant woman <laughs> yeah, without yeah, explanation. I was like, <laughs> why would a doctor ch- ch- choke up yeah it's such a weird it's, it, to me it was like the same thing about like oh a man with hooks is gonna kill uh nora it's like such a jump to make but they they rush to the hospital and we cut to isabella is actually giving birth and the baby though is having of course they're gonna of course they can't just make it there's suspense and we know they're not going to kill no damn baby, but they're still trying to make it seem like they're going to, right? Because the the delivering doctor is like, the umbilical cord's wrapped around the baby's neck. This baby's in trouble. That's what she that says. Doctor, this baby's in trouble. That doctor wanted a fucking moment, and they're like, we're going to give it to you. You're saving this baby. <laughs> um, but she really took that moment and ran with it. Yeah, they, they really start to like make it feel like there is so much going on at once because there is like we are in the finale of the film like let's be real and things are just going awry people are in trouble everywhere you look you've got fucking eugene with a collapsed lung who is completely incapacitated and he is like like you know on a bed like with a like attached to a machine but okay so this this a potential build up to this death to me is sort of not in it's line, not line. No. with the rest of the even the franchise because literally there's like nothing that is like coincidental happening what is happening it looks very much supernatural am i right oh, like yeah. the door the door closes by itself the windows close the vents close by themselves the ventilator pulls itself away from the wall so it kind of pl- it's not there's no like Every other death has had a logical sort of buildup of events that happen by almost accident. This particular death scene or setup for this death scene is almost like something you'd get out of like poltergeist or something, a, a super where the ghost is clearly causing all of this stuff, like unplugging stuff by itself. There's no, there's nothing that's causing this except the supernatural element, which really, again, did not mesh well with the rest of the film, but whatever, you know, he's recognizing this is happening and, you know, freaking out. And this does eventually build up to, I think one of the biggest talking points of this film. Uh, But I do want to say, like, I I was kind of going in the same direction with that. I, I found it kind of jarring that all of a sudden death is just like, I'm here, I'm present, deal with it. You're going to die. I'm going to make it known. And I mean, he's incapacitated, but still, like, I mean, he's very aware of what's going on. And, you know, as chaos is ensuing and people are delivering babies and running through hospitals, running into doctors and nurses, we have this moment building up right now where Clear Rivers, who has suddenly become very invested in this team, she went from a Debbie Downer to just like one of the gang. Like, she's in it to win it now. And she's on a mission to find Eugene. And she finally does identify the room that he's in. And and she starts heading in that direction. And what we're building up here, Troy, I mean, we got some thoughts on, on where this is about to go, don't we? Oh, we do. We do. In the meantime, though, before this happens, 
the contractions have stopped on Isabella and Burke is trying to stop this Dr. Ketchaturian or whatever her name is. <laughs> Isn't that like a food item? I don't know. What, I can't <laughs> like, remember. Kevorkian? I don't know. It's like, yeah, it's something Might as like well that. be doctor. It's, I, I think they were trying to make it sound like Dr. Kevorkian, but it's something that, you know. But they they stop the doctor, but they they get her and she's like, I got to get to this room. So they get into the room just in time for the baby to be delivered. So they walk in and Isabella has had the baby and it's perfectly fine. And they're like, oh, thank you. Thank you to her. And she's like, who are these people? And at the same time, to make us think that everything's going to be okay, the emergency battery battery comes on in Eugene's room. Everything opens up back up again. And you're like, oh, okay. So this really was the case. However, Kimberly goes into another premonition and she sees, you know, it's almost like a flashback. And she has a vision of the day of the crash. And she sees that Isabella wasn't even supposed to die. Isabella was on the other side of the, was out of her car watching the, the, she got, she got out of harm's way and was out of the car on the side of the road watching everything. So, uh uh-oh, all this baby shit meant nothing. So uh, all of this for naught. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, it's such a massive aspect of where they're going with the story. For it suddenly to feel so irrelevant does feel like I've wasted so much time and energy on, like, trying to get invested in the storyline that I'm really not that invested in to begin with. But, like, okay, at least now we know, like, the baby storyline is finished and now we can focus on what's important. The remaining survivors. It's just, yeah, it's kind of so lacklusterly handled. Like, I was like, oh, okay. Why do we make this such an important part of the last 30 minutes of this film? But as she's having this flashback, she also has a premonition and another vision of herself in the lake and someone with like bloody hands. Her hands are bloody in front of her. And this is the moment that Clear goes into Eugene's room. Because she thinks it may be him. Do you find it strange that, like, you know, clear, really the wet blanket of the film, she finds Eugene's room and she walks in and she's like, Eugene. And like, she is just like, there is hope in her eyes. Like, she is so happy to have found Eugene. And I kind of feel like, bitch, like, you haven't given two shits up until the last, I don't know, 45 seconds of this movie. Well, he remember he was the one that called her a crazy bitch and told her that she needed to get out and leave them alone if death was trying. So yeah, it was weird. However, that isn't even the worst of the scene because what happens is her going in the room causes the, causes basically a spark or something. I don't know what what ends up happening, but the whole fucking room blows up. You see, fucking Clear River's body, Clear launched across an entire fucking hallway consumed with fire it's clearly a mannequin but it makes it even better in my opinion because this body just limply is flung through the burning air and there is no way that clear rivers survived this explosion because you literally see you see the flesh charred off her face it's it's violent it is climactic but it certainly does feel like kind of i mean i shocking but also like I don't, I don't, I mean, I hate to say disappointing. Like we, we watch these movies, so we are shocked, but like there goes like the last tie in other Tony, other than Tony Todd, the last tie in to the original film. And I, it does make me kind of disappointed that now, like moving forward, 
it's all going to be like completely new cast structures and so forth because i'm somebody who loves to have like a thread that that weaves through a franchise and can kind of like bring it back to its roots you know well yeah and you know why'd they bring her back just to do this maybe that's why her performance is so like blasé throughout the film because she's mad that she got killed off which i would be too but like it just seemed sort of i don't know unnecessary i wonder if like she just like maybe was i'm not saying this as anything against one Ellie larder i know we come hard for Ellie larder but at the end of the day like maybe it ended up not being a great situation for her maybe she just wasn't feeling it and maybe by the end of it she just wanted to get out i don't know um but it feels like almost in a way they're like okay let's just fucking wrap her up let's get her done clear rivers is done and we can move forward you know because uh, it is like she is dead, and there ain't no way that this girl's coming back. Yeah, it's kind of dis- it's kind of disappointing. Even though we we've harped on the character, the, at least the performance, it's still clear fucking rivers. You know, like you said, she's the only thing that connects the first film to the second film, and just to have her killed off, just like so unceremoniously. Like there's really, yeah, there's really like every but every other character gets a kind of a nice buildup. I would have at least liked to have seen that, but I guess at least it's not as bad as just getting a newspaper article in part three saying she got burned alive. Like we do about Alex. Yeah. But we also have to mention, and he's just kind of totally forgotten about Eugene was killed too. Yeah. He was completely engulfed <laughs> in flame, but nobody, I mean, yeah, nobody's going to remember that. It's all about clear rivers moment of being burned to death. So it's terrible. You know, Kimberly then keeps having these fucking premonitions. So she has some premonitions. She has another one where she realizes it's her hands and that she is engulfed in water. And she comes up with this thing where she realizes what she has to do. So she's like, I'm going to go. And Burke's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? She's like, I got to end this once and for all. I have to I have to die in order for this to end. And Burke is like freaking out and she like gets really close to his ear and says, she's like, get, get Dr. Kalarjian. Oh my God. It is full fucking circle. Dr. Kalarjian who's really coming in to save the fucking day. This woman that we know nothing about and can't even say her name. (laughs) So what ends up happening is Kimberly gets back into the van and she very deliberately drives it into the lake while she's in it so that the van sinks. And, you know, uh, Officer Burke knows what he has to do too. So he jumps in the lake and is trying to get her out, but can't get the doors open. And here we get a, a moment of her literally just like drowning to death. And Burke can't get to her. However, it does this like fade out and then fade back in. And we hear, you know, the doctors talking and she is on the examining table. And Dr. Kalarjian resuscitates her. She comes in and she fucking takes charge. And I do feel that while this whole ending sequence is. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's convoluted. But like there is there is a story here. And in their own way, they're fucking wrapping it up. And, you know, obviously I entered this fucking review with a lot of praise. And even as mind bogglingly confusing as this finale is in which A.J. Cook literally just drives herself to suicide and then is resuscitated and survives. Like, let's keep in mind, like that isn't a surefire outcome. So good on Dr. Kalarjian for really having the skills to bring this dead woman back to life. Because this means that, that AJ Cook as Kimberly did in fact die on the table in order for this to work. 
it, it, it's nonsense. I still, I love it. I'm not going to shame it. It's very entertaining, but it, it, I'm not following this one for the story by this point. Yeah, it it's just convoluted and kind of silly because, you know, who wrote this rule that if you die and come back to life, that death's going to be like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to bypass you. Tony Todd, apparently, I, I don't know. It just seems like a very silly like thing to think that because you drown for and, and die for 30 seconds that and you're brought back to life, that death is going to be like, oh, OK, well, you're fine. You're fine. You're already you, done. You're good. You won this time. You won. I mean, come on. Anyway, so she's brought back to life. Dr. Burke welcomes her back and tells her we did it. We cheated death. And then it's kind of a nice little happy ending until we get this final ending scene where Kimberly. Okay. So how old do you think Kimberly is? I mean, I'm thinking she's probably like 20, maybe. Okay. And how old do you think Dr. Burke you is? You mean Officer Burke? Or off, Officer Burke. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, it's probably like 39. Okay. Yeah. It's very, uh, it's very much hinted at that. There's like uh, like an attraction between the two of them, and then like this final scene kind of hits it home where they're like at this cookout together, and it is it's the it's the parents that were at the car crash that killed Cat and Rory and that damn backwoods kid, their son who whose life was saved by Rory because okay, was but over by a vehicle. It's so a very this, quick. Th- yeah, yeah. It's strange. They're at a they're at this barbecue, and it's a very quick scene. It's the final final moments, final minute of the film. They're all this. Everyone's having a gay old time, and the the boy says he's going to go check the grill. And at this time, the father's like, "Oh, did you know that Jethro, whatever his name is, Jethro cheated death himself?" And they're like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Yeah, that day at the car accident, he almost got ran down by a news van, but your friend Rory pulled him out of the way just in time. It saved his life." And Burke and Kimberly look at each other and then they all look over at the grill and the grill fucking explodes <laughs> blowing this it is p- one of the uh, go ahead no I was just gonna say blowing this poor kid to smithereens <laughs> it is honestly one of the best fucking finales in the whole goddamn f- film series because it comes out of nowhere his hand lands right <laughs> on the, the fucking plate strategically and everyone of course starts screaming which of course as you do when these things happen. But yeah, it's 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 a great finale. Even with like the movie having like little pitfalls over the course of the progression of the story, um it 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 never ever ever fails to be entertaining. And I think this ending is a great example of that. Like this ending, it's absurd, it's far-fetched. It, it, it go, almost goes a comedic route, but I don't care because it's very aware. I was just going to say that, that, that it, it has a, just a sense of like absurdity and silliness to it that the rest of the film does not possess at all. This film has for up until this point has been very serious, very dark, but then you get this comedic, silly ending. I mean, a fucking arm landing on the mother's plate on the, picnic table and she's screaming bloody murder i mean and it the, the the score playing over it's very playful very odd ending in terms of how it connects to the tone of the rest of the film but like you i fucking love this ending it is so fun it's out of nowhere i did not expect it i remember watching it the first time in my jaw being on the floor i it's so silly it's so stupid but it's so fun it's so fun 
But when you think about like what, you know, what the series is, what it's doing, what it's setting out to do, like at the end of the day, I mean, we've said this, you know, early on as well, like, you know, you can think you can have every solution you want, but there's no fucking rules to death. Like, I mean, they can, they can think that they're, they figured out the puzzle, but death is going to come and get you regardless. And I feel like this is kind of at the end of the film, the wink to the can, the, the audience letting people know, like, you're never fucking safe. Like you might've survived this specific series of events, but like death is always there and eventually it will win. And I really think the the humor here works in the film's favor um, because the setup is so absurd. I mean, let's be real. Death is killing people intentionally. It's looking for them. Uh, this movie knows exactly what it is. Even when it falters, it never stops being true to like the the, the overall goal of what it's trying to present to its fan base, which is just absurd deaths loosely tied together by a, a simple series of events and nothing more. It knows that the people that come to see these films are here for the kills and it makes sure that it, it delivers in that area. And Oh boy, does it deliver regardless of any other falters it may have. And I think, I do think the comedic kind of the comedic ending of part two really set up then kind of nicely the tone for part three, which then bled over into the tone of part four because those th- those two sequels of all of the entire franchise have the more the most comedic, lighthearted not lighthearted I don't want to say they're not as serious as one two or five the tone is definitely verges more on comedy and I think that the ending of this film really set that up nicely for part three and part four so yeah I mean it kind of comes full circle and then you get the, the the wonderful part five which I love and now we are getting we're getting another one and I can't wait to see what they do with that but oh have you heard they've announced what it is oh, okay. do you want to know what the setup is sure do you want to know it's um first responders during a massive okay. fire oh. and a bunch of them survive it and I'm like oh you know what that sounds not like any of the other ones, to be you know, honest. I thought you were going to say, and I was like, okay, that's kind of morbid, but it's actually pretty tight. I thought you were going to say first responders to a mass shooting. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, dark, but hey, I could. I mean, it's part of American life now. You might as well go with it. But no, I mean, so Final Destination 2, Roger, one of my favorites of the franchise, if not the favorite of the franchise. I think it's a, a definitely an uh, example of a sequel that surpasses the first one, and I still like the first one quite a bit. But I mean, goddamn, one of the best sequences, that opening car crash in, I'm going to argue, cinematic history. It's just, it's incredibly well done. The impact that it's made on people that have seen it, I think, is very palpable and kind of deserves its little spot in horror history. And actually, uh, I've been watching the um, 100 Scariest Movie Moments on Shudder, and they actually had it. Final de- the scene from Final Destination Two listed at number twelve, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I get it. To be honest, when you think, so, when yeah, you and it, I was yeah. like, wow. I mean, I was very surprised. It, it placed higher than like Black Christmas. It placed higher than a lot of other films. So, I mean, it's it's that impactful. So, yeah, guys, Final Destination Two. What are your thoughts? Where would you rank it in the franchise? It's my number one. Let us know. Oh, oh I thought you were asking me. Yeah. I was like, it's my number well, one. Well, I know. Yeah, we're asking, I'm the, asking fans. the fans. Asking the fans. We, we want to, are, does anybody, would anybody, rank, I'm curious, would anybody rank this last? Oh, my God. Fools. I can't imagine there's people that think this, that think three or four is better than this. Four is especially, let's be honest, four yeah, is pretty bad. I agree. I'm not a huge fan. 
I'm curious, where would you rank Final Destination 2 in the Final Destination franchise, guys? Um, but that's that's it. I guess we can leave you with, hey, we haven't asked for a while. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Check out our Patreon where we're going to have Friday the 13th Part 8 up here real soon. Roger, do you have anything else to say about Final Destination 2? Do you want to announce our film for next week? What, what, what are you thinking? We're at two hours and 30 minutes, so make it oh quick. Oh, God. God damn, it's been so fucking long. I'm listen. I'm bringing it home. Uh, File Destination Two. I fucking love it. Give me more AJ Cook. Give me where has she been? Give me more AJ Cook. But yeah, no. This, like I said earlier, it was very nostalgic watching this film. This film was hugely defining for me as a fan of the genre. Uh, it came about at the right time, and I never really let go of my love for it, no matter how absurd it gets. Uh, it'll always be one of my favorites. And the sequences, you know, when it gets down to business. When it comes to the kills, I mean, few films do it better. So yeah, uh, I'm very curious to hear about what fans think about you know our critiques because we 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 got a little rough on certain aspects of the film, but overall, I have such love for it, such a love for it, and um, yeah, our next our next title that we're going to be reviewing, you know, we're um we're right in the thick of it, you know, we're getting into to late October at this point. And um, I think that, you know, we try to always go for obscure titles or titles maybe that don't get as much, um, you know, love or attention. But I felt like if we're going to touch on one that's like truly, truly impactful to one of us and defining for one of us, um, I mean, this is the title for me that really did shape and cement my love for the horror genre and started it for me at the tender age of seven years old. Um, I hold this title extremely uh, close to my heart. Um, I have nothing but love for it. And I'm very excited to, to get to talk about it simply from a, a place of knowledge. This is a title I, I know so much about. So it's going to be a really great conversation because um, I just want to hear your angle on it too, Troy, because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, I mean, it's, it's the seminal defining masterpiece that pretty much created a, a genre of horror that has since gone on to become one of the most renowned and pivotal subgenres there there is the zombie i mean people fucking love zombies and i get why and it's it's george romero's 1968 masterpiece night of the living dead I mean, it had to happen eventually it might as well happen with this season uh, because it is such a halloween time period film in my opinion it feels like fall it feels like there's crisp chill in the air um and it's perfect for the season in my opinion absolutely it is a classic and we we have done a we've done a few classic films so far i mean we we just did texas chainsaw massacre the original one so we are not shying away from selecting those films so it's really going to be intriguing to discuss the night of the living dead with you because i've known since i've known you that that is one of the that is the your favorite film of all time and it's definitely one that's influenced you as a filmmaker i mean you basically made it you, you remade it updated it with you know with by several aspects with your film rebirth so i am super excited to hear you discuss this film because i think there's so much that we can dive into in terms of like the social commentary that it was making the fact that it was ahead of its time in some of the casting choices correct so uh, oh, yeah. I'm super excited, you know. Um, so yeah, guys, that'll be our next episode, Night of the Living Dead. It's gonna be a fucking good it's one. Be epic. I mean, we're coming back at you after a brief hiatus with some material that's gonna be blowing skirts up. So sit the fuck down and put on your headphones.
for two and a half hours, apparently. For two and a half fucking hours. Uh, Talking about AJ Cook. All right, boys and girls. Thank you so much for joining us on this highway to hell with this uh, review of Final Destination 2. And make sure to come back next week for another masterpiece, Night of the Living Dead. Thank you so much for sticking it out with this episode. Thank you, guys. Good night. Good night. Thank you.